Greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the best damn related show on the planet at the John Campy Show, coming from right here on my YouTube channel, brought to you in part by our friends at Mint Mobile. I'm, of course, your host, John Campia, and it is an awesome honor and privilege, as it is every day, to have you, our international friends, gather around as we talk about our favorite things in the world, movies and movie news, TV and streaming and all sorts of good stuff. And I'm joined today in the house by Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Back there, we've got Ray Aura. Back there, we've got Taylor. And of course, running the show today is Jonathan. And right beside them is the delightful Chris Carr. And most importantly, you guys are here. We're so glad you decided to drop in and make this show part of your day. And here's how today's show is going to go. We're going to break it into two parts. In the first part of the show, we're going to talk about some predetermined topics. Then in the second part of the show, for those of you who are our channel members, we are going to be taking your... No, actually, today we got the uh, after show today, don't we? Yeah. So no, we're going to be taking super chat questions from you guys. So if you guys have a thought, theory, question, or opinion about any of the stuff we're talking about here today, we will open up the super chats when we get to the end of the main topics, and that will be your time to fire in your questions. All right. Also, one other thing, let you guys know about a little bit of housekeeping. For those of you guys who need your daily fix of the John Campy Show, but you can't be in front of a YouTube video, good news, there's an audio-only version known as the John Campia Show podcast. Just go onto your favorite podcasting app of choice, search for it, subscribe to it today, so it'll be there when you need it. All right, guys. With that all down, let's get right into it, shall we? Because we got a number of off-the-tops here to get to today, and we're going to start off with this one. You know, it was announced the other day that they the studio was going to be moving ahead with a Michael Jackson biopic. Now, this is something we've talked about for years, going all the way back to the movie blog days, AMC and all that kind of stuff about, you know, why hasn't there been a music biopic? He was the king of pop. How has there not been five musical? Have there not been so many biopics on Michael Jackson by now? And the problem has always been, I believe, and we've talked about this, is the fact that Michael Jackson had some controversies, Right. Now, whether you believe the controversies or you don't believe the controversies, the problem is they're there. And however a filmmaker decides to tackle these controversies is going to split the audience. If you do it in such a way that it portrays the controversies were nonsense, then you're going to piss off some people. If you take the controversy seriously and say there was some merit to them, you're going to piss off the other part of people. And I think that's what has held this musical biopic up. However, we found out the other week that Lionsgate is indeed moving ahead with a Michael Jackson biopic. They've got a director, and now they have their lead star, Jafar Jackson, son of Jermaine Jackson, nephew of Michael Jackson, has apparently been brought on to play the role of Michael Jackson in the Michael Jackson biopic. Um, this comes to us from the folks over at The Hollywood Reporter who wrote the following. They said, according to Lionsgate, the film will address all aspects of Jackson's life, all aspects of Jackson's life, though it is unclear how the film will address the many controversies involving the late music icon, given the fact that this is key, that the film is made in partnership with the estate of Michael Jackson, which has defended him against all accusations of sexually abusing children. Those accusations were... Uh, uh, return to the public discourse thanks to the 2019 HBO documentary Leaving Neverland. However, Michael Jackson's mother loves the casting choice, saying, Jafar embodies my son. It's so wonderful to see him carry on the Jackson legacy of entertainers and performers, says Catherine Jackson, mother of Michael Jackson. So there we go. I mean, we've seen a little bit of a trend in this, right? When we went, when we were doing Straight Out of Compton, they went and got Ice Cube's son to play Ice Cube. Right. And there was another one recently where it was, like, oh, yeah, The Sopranos. Yeah. Right. When they did The Many Saints of Newark and they needed a young 
Anthony, uh, Tony Soprano, they went out and got uh, Gandolfini's son to play the role. So this is becoming a bit of a trend. It seems like something that makes sense, right? That you, there's nobody you trust more than family. It is somebody who probably knows the family. They're going to have the direct ear of everybody in the family for anybody who wants to get the true nuances of Michael Jackson. It seems like a reasonable choice. Now, they say Jafar already has a music career. I have not heard any of his music myself, but they say he can sing and dance just like his Uncle Mike. So, Rob, you heard about this. What do you think? Well, in terms of the casting, I you can see it, the resemblance, the picture. I mean, it's great. You can't... I, I, I have no argument with it. I mean, I do think... Look, as a film, it's a very challenging uh, subject to take on. I mean, obviously, you know, in the 70s and 80s, as a child of the 70s and 80s, Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5 loomed large. I mean, as a kid, you knew all their songs. And then when Michael Jackson started his solo career and did Off the Wall, and then, of course, I mean, Thriller hit the culture with a, a, oh, yeah. this, the force of a nuclear explosion. And then... And then even after that, bad. I mean, Martin Scorsese directing the music video for that. I mean, it was, you know, he's he he is an icon. He really is the the king of pop. And there's no denying the the amazing cultural importance that Michael Jackson represented for decades. So I'm you know I'm curious. I mean, I actually met him once. I met him in a comic. Really? Yeah. I I was there's a comic book store. It used to be in the middle of Melrose called Golden Apple. And he would shop there. And one day he came in and with an entourage of mothers and their sons, they closed the store and Sharon Leibowitz and Bill Leibowitz let me stay in the store. And I actually spoke to him and he was a dyed in the wool bonafide geek, you know, and he asked me, you know, what I thought was cool. And we looked at statues. He was very much, I, I don't know how much he spent because I left, but he really loved his Marvel and DC statues. And this was, I want to say this was late 90s. And it was interesting because the energy that was coming off of him was as a fan. He was a fan. He loved comic book characters and he loved the collectibles. And so that was my interact interaction with him. But the kids were just, and he was explaining what certain things were, the kids and their moms and all this. And, and it was interesting because, you know, when you meet people like that, at first, they're always surprising to me. Whenever I meet celebrities like that, they're always surprising because this was, he was, we were sharing our bond over comic book characters, you know, and, and it wasn't just an affectation. Like he knew his stuff and it was interesting. You know, I mean, that was my only interaction with Michael Jackson, probably for about 10 or 15 minutes. But I was like, he was just like anybody I'd meet at Comic-Con. Chris, uh, I mean, we hear about this. We've got Michael Jackson's nephew mm -hmm. is is going to be playing the role, following a little bit of a trend that we've had. So two things. What do you think about the casting of Jafar? And, and I know we're not talking about an Aladdin remake. Uh, what do you think about the casting of Jafar? And secondly, with Michael Jackson's estate attached, is there any chance they dive too seriously into the controversy surrounding Michael Jackson? Or is this going to be a little bit more of a fair weather kind of Biopic. I feel like this is definitely going to be more rose tinted glasses. Uh, if we do delve into any controversy, I think it'll be about the, you know, how audacious it was to even suggest these sort of things, right? Um, I do like the casting of his nephew. He dropped a single back in 2019. I haven't listened to myself, so I'm not sure how 
like what kind of music he does or what his music career is like. But obviously, he looks like his uncle from growing up. I'm wondering if they're spending a lot of time in their youth as well, because obviously that's another part of his life that was very, very dark. I mean, they were stage children who were really, really treated poorly by his father, um, Michael seemingly getting the worst of it than his brothers. Um, so I'm wondering how much with this date involved, we'll delve into that as well. That's fairly well documented, though. So I assume we'll get some of that. But his later life, I don't know how much we'll delve into that because it was so, you know, tumultuous and there's so many different opinions and theories. And while the documentary did put a lot of that to rest, I think most people in your public audience still have, you know, their own theories and thoughts about how he conducted his life. All right, guys, question is for you. What do you think about this? Michael Jackson's nephew is going to be playing the king of pop in the upcoming biopic about his life. What do you think about that? Do you like that kind of choice? And we're seeing that happen a lot in Hollywood these days. It's worked out so far with Straight Outta Compton and Many Saints of Newark. Yeah. And then considering it's a family affair, how much do you think they're going to go into the controversies of Michael Jackson's life? Whatever you guys think, jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that down, let's go into another off the top here. And that one is this. You know, we've talked about one of the most pleasant surprise movies for me over the last couple of years is it's out there right now, Puss in Boots. What is it called? The Last Wish? Mm -hmm. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. I was not a huge fan of the, the first Puss in Boots. I like the character in the Shrek films. Um, and I'm not a cat guy. I don't know if you knew this. I didn't yeah. know that. No, no. Many, I don't many think American homes on the internet knew that are infested with the vermin known as cats. However, that being said, I was taken with the trailers and I loved the movie. And without going into any details, something that happens in the movie, it has reignited the conversations of the Shrek universe, right? Even going so far as to say the studio CEO the other day made the comment that Puss in Boots is our re-entry point into the Shrek universe telling us that they've got plans for the future. Well, one person who seems to love the idea of a return of Shrek is Eddie Murphy. <laughs> Eddie Murphy has come out and he has said straight up, I would love to come back for another Shrek. And I want a donkey spinoff movie because according to Eddie Murphy, donkey is way funnier than Puss in Boots. Uh, this comes to us from the folks over at Variety who wrote the following. Eddie Murphy is more than ready to reprise donkey in a fifth Shrek movie or a donkey-centric spinoff. So far, only Antonio Banderas' Puss in Boots has gotten a Shrek spinoff treatment with 2011's Puss in Boots and 2022's Puss in Boots' Last Wish. According to Murphy, Donkey, donkey is far funnier and more worthy of a spinoff than Puss. Eddie Murphy said the following, I'd absolutely be open if they ever came with another Shrek. I'd do it in two seconds. I love Donkey, Murphy said to E-Talk in a recent interview. You know, they did Puss in, the Puss in Boots movies. I was like, they should have done a donkey movie. Donkey is funnier than Puss in Boots. I mean, I love Puss in Boots, but he ain't as funny as the donkey. So uh, if, you don't, if I don't say so myself, Eddie Murphy thinks he's his character is better than the other characters. Okay, let's put that aside for a second. I love the fact that Eddie Murphy's like, especially considering with the resurgence that Murphy's had in his career, of course, his new movie, uh, what is it called? You People. You People. Is out on and watched it last night. While I watched I was it too. I rewatched. I, I after watching The Last of Us. While Anne was doing that, I then watched To Leslie, and then I decided to step even later and watch The Last of Us again, <laughs> and then didn't work. So I didn't watch it. But Eddie Murphy's had a resurgence. To see him say, "I are you kidding? Tell, give me a call. 
You got you got another Shrek on the go? I'm there. I'll do it. So I love that. And I love Eddie Murphy as Donkey. Love him as Donkey. That being said, I will actually disagree with him that not that Donkey isn't a funnier character than Puss in Boots, because I think he's right about that. I don't think a Donkey spinoff movie is as good of an idea as a Puss in Boots spinoff movie, simply because I think the power of that character, Donkey, where he really, really shines, is as a supporting character. Like, Shrek is not Shrek without Donkey. I mean, it's just it's just not nearly as good without Donkey. But Shrek is a great lead character. Donkey is a great sidekick character. And I think that's what brings the best out of Donkey. I don't know if Donkey was... I think we might get a little tired of Donkey if, it, if Donkey was the lead main spotlight character. Whereas when you have him in a supporting role character, he accentuates, that character accentuates and lifts up the material and really, really shines in that supporting role. Whereas with Puss in Boots, Puss in Boots, you can build something around him. I don't think Puss in Boots is as good of a site as supporting character as Donkey is. But either way, I would love to see Donkey return, I, whether it's in a Shrek film or in another, the Shrek universe. And I love the fact that Eddie Murphy's down for doing this. Anyway, Chris... <laughs> You heard, you're hearing uh, Eddie Murphy's comments. What do you yeah. think about him saying, you know, we've been talking about the studio saying we want to re-enter the Shrek universe. Now we've got Eddie Murphy saying he's all for coming back. What do you think about that? And what do you think about his comments that maybe Donkey should have his own spinoff? I mean, I want them to do all the DreamWorks projects. I've auditioned for DreamWorks so many times. I want them <laughs> to do everything and do all the things. Um, I love the idea of this happening. Uh, at the end of Puss in Boots, spoilers, there is kind of a moment that is the the reawakening of the Shrekverse, if you will, coming back to that land. So I think there's absolutely room for this. I'd love to see how he's doing with his dragon wife and their little babies. I think that'd be precious. <laughs> I think the biggest takeaway here, though, is that Taylor Gonzalez makes things happen he wishes that it comes true i'm here for it rob you hear about this i mean obviously we love hearing eddie because we love eddie murphy but what do you think about his you know proposition that maybe donkey should have a spinoff well first of all i echo what chris just said i thought taylor was going to be in the hospital this morning <laughs> honestly. But, but no you know there's a, a movie that's up for i think it's up for best foreign or best international film at the academy awards this year called eo that's actually about a donkey. Right. Yes. And I heard the the director who directed is like 80 years old, like this 80-year-old, 80-year-old Polish director. I heard him on NPR speaking. And I was I actually thought about Donkey when I was listening to him talk. I'm like, you know, I wonder if they could because the things that he was saying about animals, I'm like, you could do it. So I, I I it just made me think about Donkey. So the fact that this story came out, I was like, no way. I'm like, Eddie Murphy probably heard the same thing on NPR that I heard because Donkeys seem to be in the zeitgeist. I don't know. But I think, look, I think this could be great, again, depending on, it has to be a great script and it has to be a great story. But I could see what is the origin of this character? Like, where did he come from? You know, how did he come to be with Shrek? And 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 who is this character? And if it's well-written, with Eddie Murphy, dude, I watched you people. Uh, between Dolomite Is My Name, Coming to America 2 was hugely disappointing, but Dolomite Is My Name and his performance in You People. And I can't wait to see Beverly Hills Cop 4. I mean, Eddie Murphy could crush this, depending if it was good or not. And if they're going to reboot the Shrek universe, I mean, how great would that be? I mean, everybody loves Shrek. Not as much as someone in this room, but everybody <laughs> loves the Shrek franchise. And I, I really think that, you know, with these actors, there's with this nostalgia with Tom Cruise doing Top Gun Maverick, why not everybody should cash in? 
And if, if they have a great script, I mean, like you said, the first Puss in Boots movie, eh, I saw Last Wish. I loved it. I, yeah, it I loved, really I loved it more than I thought I was going to love it. And I'm like, this was Antonio Banderas crushed it. And all the all the other storybooks, the Goldilocks, the Three Bears, it was great. Um, but I, I would love to see it. And you know what? I'll, I'll say this too. We haven't talked, and I'm guilty of this. I haven't talked about it either. You know, the more I think about it, when you look in the tradition, like evolve animation, like the great villains of animation, Jafar, Ursula, you know, all these things. You know what? That wolf in, in Puss in Boots is, I really think one of the truly great, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say he's thug. I'm not going to say he's scar. I'm not going to say whatever, but, no, but he's so truly well one of the great animated mm -hmm. villains. Yes. Yes. Cause like he, when he would pop up, like I literally got chills. Like I, I would feel that's, I mean, I was really, really great. Anyway, guys, question is for you. What do you think about this? Eddie Murphy is saying, Hey, you give me a call. You want another Shrek? I'm there. What do you think about that? And his assertion that, a donkey spinoff movie would be better than Puss in Boots. Whatever you guys think, jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's get into a third off the top, shall we? And this one's kind of interesting, and that is this. You know, we are on day 30 of the James Gunn announcement watch uh, because James Gunn told us in January, I'm going to start laying out the plans. I'm going to start, not all of it, but I'm going to start telling you guys the plans. Sometime in January. We are 30 days into January. Not much left. Got about, what do we got like, like 39 hours left of January? <laughs> not exactly sure. The clock is ticking. We're waiting to hear an announcement. But we may have just found out a little bit about his plans from an unlikely source and Dave Bautista. Now, of course, Dave Bautista is a, is a close friend of James Gunn. James Gunn is the one who really put, outside of the world of wrestling, James Gunn is the one who really put Dave on the map when it comes to acting in the entertainment business, and they have been close, tight friends ever since. Now, we've talked recently about the fact that, well, for years, Dave Bautista has campaigned and wants to play Bane. And we've even said on the show, I've even said on this show, Put your money on Dave Batista being Bane now. James Gunn's his total buddy. He would make a he would make a solid Bane. I think you can put your money on that Dave Batista is going to be Bane. Nope, he ain't going to be Bane because according to a report in Variety, Dave Batista says he's actually met. He had a meeting, sat down with Peter Safran and with James Gunn, and had a talk. And the basics of it was they told him, Dave, we love you, but you're too old. You're too old to play Bane. At this point, we need to go a little bit younger. Now, that in and of itself is interesting because it tells us a couple of things. Um, one, that they're not just playing. Because listen, Dave Batista is not too old to play Bane one or two times. He's not. He's he, Look at the guy. <laughs> He's an imposing physical monster. And by the way, if the, the scenes we've seen at a knock at the cabin, he could easily come across as very articulate, intelligent, and menacing like a Bane should. But was he born in the darkness? <laughs> I was born in the darkness. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, maybe he's no Harley Quinn's Bane, which is still one of the greatest characters on television right now, but the actual character Bane has been so misrepresented. Harley Quinn, we give a pass because that's, yeah. that's satire. Bane as a character has been completely misrepresented. Like even going back to the Clooney, you know, Batman, 
Bane was just this this hulking monster. Bane is a hyper intel like that's his main power is his intelligence, right? I think he could play him great in a one shot movie. The 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 very fact that James Gunn would say you can't be Bane because at this point you're you're aged out. You can't play him at this point. To me that that suggests to me that James Gunn may have long term plans for a Bane character. Nothing official because it's only January thirtieth and we still haven't heard anything from James yet. But it tells me may have longer term plans. But buried in the headlines of Dave Batista saying he's too old to play Bane now is a fascinating quote that nobody's really talking about. Because one of the things we've all been discussing is how extensive is this James Gunn, Peter Safran DC Universe change going to be? Is it going to be like a soft reboot? Is it going to be, we're going to keep some things and change some things? Is it going to be a page one restart? Everybody's had their, their opinions. Well, Dave Batista had something interesting to say about that. This is from the article in Variety. Dave Batista said this, and listen to, the, to his wording here. I have had conversations with James about that, playing Bane, Batista said. But I think the direction he's leaning in, completely rebooting the whole universe He's starting from scratch and starting younger and fresher. And I think you need to do that. I think for the DC universe to be revived, you need to start from scratch. And I think you need to start with younger actors. You need to start to plan for the next 15 years. And I just don't think you can do that with me, he said. And I understand that. Again, listen to this. James Gunn is leaning towards completely rebooting the whole universe, starting from scratch, uh, on and on and on. Now, Dave Bautista is also saying something that we have said a number of times. Because listen, we don't know what James Gunn's doing, but we have said for a long time, look, if you want to revive this thing, if you want to give this thing a fighting chance to be where the DC properties deserve to be, on par, success-wise, you know, reputation-wise, all that kind of stuff with the Marvel films, you can't do it by continuing on with a universe that has fallen completely short of that. You need a fresh start. Now, whether or not James Gunn is do that, we don't know for sure. But Dave Batista, who knows James Gunn very well, coming out and saying, yeah, I had a talk with him and Peter. I think they're leaning towards a complete day one restart, which this is the closest thing we've heard to any kind of a conference. And I wouldn't call this a confirmation because it's not James Gunn himself. But this is a very, very close friend of James Gunn who had discussions about him, about being a part of the DC universe. And it sounds like they're going for a complete restart. Anyway, Rob, two separate questions here. First question, obviously, is about what do you think about the idea that, you know, we were very bullish on the idea of Dave Batista playing Bane. Looks like that's not going to happen. And secondly, what do you think about Batista saying that he thinks James Gunn's going for a complete page one restart? Well, first of all, you know, Batista's got Knock at the Cabin coming out. Yeah, where he's front, looks great. front and center. I mean, and, and, you know, you've pointed out that of all, and we've talked about this on the show, that of all these actors, the wrestlers turned actors, that Batista is really stated and he's shown through his, I thought he was terrific in Glass Onion. And now seeing this, he's really carving himself out an acting career, working with different directors, definitely tackling different kinds of material because Knock at the Cabin is very different than his Glass Onion role. Or his Drax role. Or his Drax role. And and I, I'm very excited, to be honest. I think what he said is what we've been saying about what James Gunn was going to do. They're a, a complete reboot, starting over, a reconceptualization, a reimagining of the DC cinematic universe from scratch. 
And that, John, has always been why I'm excited for it, because, look, we got a decade of, and we're still getting the remnants of what Zack Snyder and Christopher Nolan started with Man of Steel. And we're getting that with, ultimately, with uh, Aquaman. You know, and that's kind of a fitting end. You had a decade of, of their vision of it with different characters and iterations of things. And that's that's a generation. You know, that's... A, that's In movie terms, that is a generation. It's a generation. Yeah. So the fact that we're getting something new and that there's architects behind it that are that are starting from scratch, that's exciting to me from a... Uh, an imagination connoisseur fan, you know, I want to see what they're going to do. This is something as a comic fan I've seen. And I think with James Gunn, look, the guy who's doing this already created a franchise for Marvel that everyone said, guardians of the galaxy, you know, and, and the fact that you've talked about how much you love slither and how, what he did with super, this is somebody that has worked in the business for a very long time that is being given the reins of power. Basically it's what all of us geeks dream of. Well, if I ever had the opportunity to, do something with my favorite franchise he's getting that opportunity so by proxy he's doing what we all would hope to do and i'm very curious to see what he's gonna do and i think it's really exciting by the way side question did you see the tweet he put out like a week or two ago james gonna put out a tweet where it's a picture of him at his breakfast table looking outside his window. he said starting the day with coffee and comics and i think that was all-star superman and that do you do you think that was just like it just happened uh, to be the one in front of him or no, do you think he was giving think, a hint? I think that he I I didn't know if you saw it, but this weekend he put out a tweet. Somebody asked him, there's a whole tweet string about people waiting for this, like, should we get Congress involved to find out to, to I mean it was like very that. funny, and it was because James Gunn came out and said, I don't know what the tweet was, but it was something he said, Oh, you're gonna find out, meaning we're gonna get this announcement by the end of the month. All of these things have been tremors. They've been tremors leading up to the main main event. What you mentioned, even this article that just dropped, these are little tremors that are leading up. He's yeah. he sees he's playing us like a fiddle. Yeah, he yeah. really is. And that 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 the tweet string, I think it was yesterday, was hilarious because it was all in response to what he said. So I think whether today or tomorrow, there's gonna be some big doings happening, especially on this show, because we're gonna respond. Okay, Eddie Murphy but if is he donkey. is in like an all-star Superman, who would you want him as? Did you would you want him as like Alex Luthor as Parasite? Do you want him to just be oh, like working Dave at Batista? Cadmus? Yeah, if, oh, like, I don't he's know reading if he'll be that. In it. But if he's reading that for like role research, just wild speculation. No, no, it was James Gunn reading it. Oh, it wasn't James Dave Gunn? Yeah, oh, okay. It was James Gunn saying, starting the day with coffee it. and comics. It was James oh, Gunn's tweet, not right. Dave well, He's got to do that for work. Never mind. That's yeah. less Dave exciting. Dave Bautista's not going to be Superman. It's wildly less exciting to me. Okay. I thought Dave Bautista was reading it, and I was no, like, it was could James he be Parasite? That's a totally different story. That's no, but cool. I'm, with, I'm with Jonathan. James Gunn, of all the people that have been You're running wise. a studio, James Gunn knows how to manipulate social media. I'm sure he... They, they've charted this course out from the beginning. That's one of the, the appeals that I think James Gunn has is he has this huge audience and he can play us and we are being played. I'll tell you what, I'm going to be doing something I never do. I'm going to be having my phone with James Gunn's Twitter account open and I'm going to be refreshing it every 10 minutes. See, has he dropped it? Because again, we got like 30 something hours left for him to meet this self-imposed deadline of end of January. Anyway, Chris, we had this discussion about maybe Dave Batista being Bane, about yeah. it's been a dream role of his. Now his one of his buddies is the head of DC. What do you think about the notion that, and what do you make of the fact that he's saying that looks like I'm too old to play the role now? And then furthering to his comments, what do you think about him saying that James Gunn is going to do a page one restart? Yeah, well, I mean, he's 54 years old and we're not getting a Bane movie today. 
So it's something that would be down the pipeline. So while he is very physically fit and does lots of really great physical acting work, too, you know, if he makes this movie five, ten years from now, it's going to be an older gentleman. You probably want to start with somebody a little bit younger so you have a little bit more durability and sustainability with that kind of role, right? Um, I, I think that it's great that they're starting from scratch. I think that's fantastic. I think that's what needs to be done here. And I want to reiterate that this doesn't mean that some of the other things that we've talked about are going to pl- completely go away, right? We're still going to have Matt Reeves do another Batman movie. There's always <clears throat> all this talk yes. about how, like, it's not going to happen. We're not getting it now. James Gunn is going to destroy everything I love. <laughs> he's, he's not. He's not. He is a true fan who's reading comic books on his free time. Again, it's his job, but I'm, I'm very pleased with this. He's a true fan. He loves this stuff. He loves this IP. I think he's going to give it the best shot it's got. And that's what we as fans deserve, is somebody who loves this material, respects this material, trying to make the best stories possible and the best adaptations. We're going to be talking so much today about how hard it is to do a good adaptation and what changes you should make from source material when you're changing mediums or changing stories. And I think James Gunn is going to do a really great job of all that. And I think restarting everything is a solid, solid foundation. All right, guys. We want to think a spot- is for you. What do you think of Masterclass? No, question is for you. What do you think about this? Number one, that Dave Batista. I, I guess he's saying, yeah, I'm too old to be the start of this character. Do you think that suggests that James Gunn might have big plans for Bane? And also, what do you think about Dave Batista saying this is going to be a complete restart, which may not be what a lot of people were thinking it was going to be. We got 30-something hours to find out what James Gunn is doing. Whatever you guys think, jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's get into our Mint Mobile hotline question of the day. If you guys have a question for us on the show and you'd like to hear your voice on the show, go ahead and call that hotline number anytime 24-7. The fine people over at Mint Mobile will be ready to record your call and send it on to us at 951-268-4259. And today we got a question about what's going to be better, Mandalorian or The Last of Us? Hey, John, this is Dennis from Nashville, Tennessee. I was just wondering, with Pedro Pascal leading the charge with the streaming shows with Mandalorian and The Last of Us, which one do you think will end up being the better show at the end of the year? And which one do you think will win more awards, if any at all? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, Dennis. And you know what? This is a question that's kind of came up prior to The Last of Us starting, right? We've all been talking for a while. It's like, holy crap. Like, the first quarter of 2023 is like owned by Pedro Pascal. He's got Mandalorian. He's got Last of Us. You know, a lot of the questions came, what's going to be better and all that kind of stuff. Now, initially, we were all saying the common sense thing. They're going to be two very different shows. That's going to be hard to compare. And by the way, we haven't seen Last of Us yet. We haven't got to see any of it. Okay. We're now three plus hours into The Last of Us, which probably almost equates a full season of Mandalorian anyway, but we're about three plus hours into The Last of Us. By the way, episode three, hour and 20-something minute, minutes. Man, making Disney look bad. Making Disney Plus look bad with their stupid shit little 32-minute episodes. Anyway, uh, that's another topic for another time. But we, we now we've seen a few episodes. So we have a little bit of a basis for comparison, right? And like we all thought, you all thought it, we thought it, these are very different shows. I mean, so it's hard to compare. But they are Pedro Pascal vehicles coming out roughly. It's going to be, there's even going to be a little bit of a, a bumper there. Who, which of these two shows is ultimately going to end up being the better show? Let me start off by saying this. I 
passionately love Mandalorian. And it's funny how everybody's tune changed because everybody, at the, when season two came to an end of Mandalorian and Luke shows up, all of a sudden everybody looked back at season two with these rose colored glasses. Don't think I forgot. Every week in the first five episodes or so, everything, season two's not as good as season one. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is brilliant. This is the classic story arc of going like adventure by adventure every episode. No, and everybody was complaining about season two. And then all of a sudden they did a Luke cameo and everybody thought season two was the greatest thing ever. I thought season two was fantastic. I love this show. Last of Us is the better show. They're very, very different. They go for different things. They're aiming for even different audiences in many ways. But as much as I love Mandalorian, and I cannot wait for season three to start, I am positively giddy about season three starting. The Last of Us is the better show. Now, we're going to go into episode three uh, in a little bit. Uh, so we're not going to go into anything in episode three right at this moment. But I, I, I'll just say this. It's overall ability to tell its story and enrapture the audience into it is not just great compared to Mandalorian or compared to genre material. This is one of the best shows I've seen in years. Like this is, I put out a tweet yesterday that just basically said, just give Last of Us all the awards. <laughs> I mean, because come Emmy season, we get all excited around here when a show like Andor gets some Emmy attention, gets a little, gets an, a nomination here, there. When Mandalorian got a couple of nominations, like we all get really, really excited about that. I'm telling you right now, Last of Us is going to be a serious front runner when the next Emmys come around. It's going to be serious, not just, oh, isn't that cute? This little genre thing, getting some attention. It's going to be a serious front runner. I can already tell you, it's freaking January and we can already say that with almost certainty. So when it comes to, you know, Dennis is asking about awards. Definitely The Last of Us has, has a better chance at that. And as passionately in love as I am with this, I, listen, this show is, The Last of Us is better than The Boys. You know how much I love The Boys. Uh, I think Last of Us is better than Yellowstone. Yellow, uh, up until now, I've been wow. saying Yellowstone is my favorite show on TV right now. And I, I, I love it. It's amazing. This is a better show than Yellowstone. So I would go now that we've got a little bit of a sample size of The Last of Us. I will say while they are totally different shows, I lean towards The Last of Us. Chris, you know, we this discussion went on for months and months and months leading up to The Last of Us coming out. What's ultimately going to be better? It's just fan things. But we've got a little bit of a taste now. And if, you know, if the, you were put in a corner, said you got to say which one do you think is the better show? We got about three plus hours of Last of Us now. Mandalorian or Last of Us, which is the better Pedro Pascal vehicle? I'd be like, I'm very claustrophobic. Please let me out of this corner. This is rude and abrasive. <laughs> um, I, I, why can't I like both? Why can't I like both equally for different reasons? I can have nice things. I think ultimately I have a little bit more fun watching Last of Us because I'm more familiar with it than I am with Star Wars ultimately. Like when I watch Mando with Logan, he knows so much extended lore. He reads all the novels. He has so many figures. He reads the comics and everything. Whereas I am more of a casual Star Wars viewer in that I've only seen the movies in the animated universe, which in terms of Star Wars does make you a bit more of a filthy casual than, you know, some <laughs> others. Whereas for Last of Us, when I'm watching this, it's, oh, what an interesting way that they changed this or, oh, that differs from the lore in the game or, hey, Bill actually said, you know, I can have that kind of thing. So I think I find enjoyment in The Last of Us in that way of being able to 
experience it as a gamer again and then also be really, really moved by that story. Um, whereas, you know, Mando a lot of times too, some of the episodes, some of the little romps are just space fun. It's a very, very different vibe. If I want to have a really gut-wrenching emotional journey, apparently I'm going to watch The Last of Us. But if I want to have some space explorations and shenanigans, I'm going to go to Mando. Rob, it, it's one we've had to talk about for a while now, but now we've got a little bit of substance to, to base around. The viewers asking, which one do we think is going to end up being the better show? What do you well, think? It's interesting because we're always pitting one show against another and or one thing's better. Well, that's, what, that's what we do. I know, that's what yeah. we do. But I, I think one, like you pointed out, they're very different shows. Yes. And they're both very enjoyable. You know, and, and I have to say, dude, I'm waiting for the name. I think after this season, Theory, The Mandalorian is going to change its title. To the Mandalorians. <gasps> I, I think, oh, the gasp uh, across the auditorium. I, I, think, I think that's going to happen because it looks that way. I mean, I, I keep saying that. And how cool I would that be? Over. But anyway, that beside the point. I mean, it's delivering that 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 pulp Star Wars goodness that mm -hmm. we're looking for. And Pedro Pascal's awesome in the role. But even the experience of Pedro Pascal is so much deeper and resonant in The Last of Us. If you're just using Pedro Pascal as your bellwether, I think The Last of Us uh, serves him better. You know, sure, we're getting yeah. to know him more. And and I, la even last night, I mean, it's amazing how they sort of used Pedro Pascal as a bra they, bookending, so to speak, the, the, the episode, which really surprised me. Because the format of the episode... Well, was, let's not go too much into the, no, into but, the but individual I, episode. Just how it ended. But uh, <laughs> No, but I thought it was... I, I thought it was... I, I mean, he's amazing in this show. And I think The Last of Us is... And I hate to say this because I, I hope people take it in the spirit it's intended. The Last of Us is about more than The Mandalorian is. In I, terms think, of, I think that's a safe thing to in, say. In terms yeah. of, of, of the human experience. And so I would say as a show that is more resonant, that has wider appeal uh, to audiences beyond the fan audience, I think The Last of Us would be, by certain metrics, considered a better show. All right, guys, the question is for you. It's a question we've all been talking about in our fan circles for months and months and months. What do you think is going to be the better Pedro Pascal show, Mandalorian Last of Us? Well, we've got... A significant sample size now, three plus hours, The Last of Us. How would you see it? They're clearly very, very different shows, and we could absolutely love both of them. But if you had to give the edge to one, which one would it be? Whatever you guys think, jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, we're going to move into our main topics here. But before we do, we want to take a quick second here and thank one of the sponsors of today's show, our friends at Fume. Guys, we want to take a second to thank a sponsor of this video, Fume. Be smart. Don't start. Kick the habit. Put it out before it puts you out. All phrases we've heard a hundred times, and yet we still continue to have bad habits. Today's sponsor, Fume, is on a mission to accelerate humanity's breakup from the bad habits that consume far too many of us. Fume is a natural diffusive device that uses plants and behavioral science to help you trade out your negative habit for a positive one. You see, Fume is not a vape. It's a non-electronic device designed to transform your negative habits. Because instead of pods filled with potentially harmful chemicals like a vape, 
Fume uses cores infused with plants like peppermint and cinnamon for delicious natural flavors. And Fume's new version 2 model is snappy and tactile. With an adjustable airflow dial and a magnetic end cap, your fingers will always have something to do. The device itself is really attractive, and once I popped in the core and took my first inhale of it, it tasted fantastic. Guys, the easiest way to stop a bad habit is to switch to a positive one, and Fume is designed to perfectly do just that. So head over to tryfume.com and use the promo code CAMPIA to save 10% off when you get the Journey Pack today. The Journey Pack comes with three unique flavors and the new version 2 Fume to help kickstart your positive habits. That's tryfume, T-R-Y-F-U-M dot com and use the code CAMPIA to save an additional 10% off your order today. And thank you to our friends at Fume for helping people kick their habits and for being a sponsor of the John Campia Show. Remember, guys, when you try and support our sponsors, you're actually supporting us. So if you look down in the description of this video, you'll find links and promo codes to all of today's sponsors. And thank you again to Fume. All right, guys, with that down, let's get into our main topics here today, shall we? And how do we select our main topics on the show? Well, that's easy because you guys come up with our main topics. Whenever you guys come across a big topic issue or story that you guys feel we absolutely must cover here on the show, just go anytime, 24-7, over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's 100% free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on The John Campia Show. With that down, Chris, what is our first main topic today? Our first topic comes from Donovan. Read some really sad news today. Actress Anne Wershing, who did the voice of Tess in The Last of Us Games, died. She was one of those actresses who just seemed to pop up everywhere in a lot of stuff me and my wife would watch, like 24, Picard, Vampire Diaries, and recently The Rookie. Never a major star, but somebody who always made the show she appeared in better. Rest in peace. What did you guys think of her work? I was so sad when I read this because you're right. She was one of those actresses that I would always just see pop up. She was never a household name. I would always see her pop up and I loved seeing her pop up. And you're right. Most recently, there's a show I really like, the Nathan Fillion show, The Rookie. And she had a recurring role on that as basically that world's Hannibal Lecter. Uh, she played an infamous serial killer uh, known as Ro Rosalind Dyer. And she was this brilliant serial killer that even when she was in prison, she was orchestrating serial killings going up. She was cold and whatever. And I love her. She was the board queen. She was the board queen. And of course she was in Bosch. She was one of the characters. I loved Marvel's Runaways. That was on Hulu. I, at least the first couple of seasons. I really liked that. But she just, by the way, her very first acting appearance was much like our own Aaron Cummings was Star Trek Enterprise was her very first television role spot that she got she appeared in a lot of stuff over the years and again like for me most recently i was watching her on the rookie i love seeing her pop up in that and i this one shocked me because you know every we talk every once in a while about these screen legends and icons who pass away but they pass away at the age of 80 or 92 or in, in the case of the beloved betty way like 99 or whatever I, this one was way too i had no idea she was ill Apparently, she was diagnosed with cancer in 2020, and she was doing stuff like The Rookie, no, like with her diagnosis. Like she knew she was dying, and she was still working and doing this. And I had no idea as a fan and somebody who was watching. I had no idea, really. And she was beautiful and talented, and just anyway, I was really, really sad to read about this. Uh, anyway, Rob, 
I mean, she's she's been in she's a she she's a uh, frequent appearer, if you will. She's an alum of the Star Trek world on several levels. Uh, what do you think about this? I have to say, like you know me, I've been a been a uh, a critic of modern Star Trek. She was tremendous as the Borg Queen. She was so good. Um, and I I, I watched Bosch. You know, I've really yeah. I like Bosch because I've read Michael Connolly's books and stuff. She was great in that. She was a beautiful woman, a mother, a wife, and she was 45 years old. Yeah. And, you know, again, I have to say I, I see parallels between her and Chad Bozeman. You know, they both had these cancer diagnoses and they didn't they didn't give up. You know, they didn't let that uh, stop them from continuing on and doing great work because, you know, all of our lives are finite and if I found out that I was going to die in two or three years, I wouldn't stop working. You know, I wouldn't stop enjoying my life. And she continued to give us great work and she continued to earn for her family and she continued to be a warrior, you know, and not stop. And I think that's that's a lesson we all need to take heart of. And, and um, uh, you know, I'm very sad to hear that we won't be getting any more of her great work, but I think that she stands as a representative of of how to lead a lead a good life. Uh, one of our viewers, Mike, in the live chat, is saying her and Aaron could have played sisters. I, you know, I didn't mm -hmm. think about that. Oh, but you're absolutely right. They totally could. They have. totally could have played sisters. Um, anyway, Chris, uh, you hear about this? What of her work stood out to you the most, and your thoughts on her passing away way too young? Now, obviously, her work as Tess, doing all the motion captures, was the voice was just incredible. But actually, I, I first saw her. You know, I saw her face on camera because I was watching Runaways because my friend Mia Tapalian played the younger version of Leslie Dean on that show. And so when we were working on her getting that role and everything, too, we looked at photos and we watched the episodes and all this stuff. And, you know, um, she was a really, really tremendous actress. And I think that's this is the goal that every actor wants to have, too, is to be just a working actor. You know, and she epitomized that. She did tremendous varied work. She was incredible as the Borg Queen. That was one of the only things that we could agree on about Picard. Yes. Was how good she was. And I, I know she'll be very, very missed. All right, guys. Question is for you. Uh, what was your best memory of her work in this incredible actual career? One of these performers who never became a household name but a master themselves, a really good career, bringing a lot of great performances to us for our entertainment. How do you guys feel about this? Whatever your thoughts are, jump down to the comment section below and leave your thoughts there. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two, shall we? Chris, what is our second main topic today? Our second topic comes from Terry Lanza. So I saw the Oscar announcements, and at first I thought it was a good set. Until I saw more into the Best Actress nominations, and oh boy, do I smell a scandal brewing with Andrea Risenborough. Not only basically has no one heard of her film, but she cut corners by using her celebrity friends to influence the nominations so she could get one in expensive Viola Davis and or Danielle Deadweiler. What do you think about this, and how do you think the potential blowback this may have moving forward with Andrea's career and with Oscar and awards campaigning? All right, thanks a lot for saying that in, Terry. And... You know, I, I knew we had to address this today because there, there's a couple of things here. Number one, there's some massive incorrect misinformation being spread around about this that Deadline pointed out, and, and I'm glad they did. We'll, we'll get to that in just a second. But it also brings up an interesting question about who should get a nomination. And, you know, when, if you think this this human tendency we have that 
when it comes to subjective stuff like art and performances, that if somebody you didn't think deserved the nomination got over somebody did, then the only possible explanation could be, other than other people just had a different opinion than you, was there must be a secret, sinister underbang. Really? It couldn't just be that other people thought differently than you do? No, 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 no. Only explanation is some dark, sinister thing. Look, you probably saw a headline going around a lot about that the Academy has launched an inquiry into this over the Andrea Risenbrow situation. Andrea Risenbrow ended up very surprisingly getting an Oscar nomination for Best Actress for her movie To Leslie, a movie none of us have seen. No, it made $27,000. Not $27 million, made $27,000. Ain't nobody seen it. Nobody watched it, right? However, there's this thing started going around that the Academy was launching an inquiry into her nomination. Listen to me. That was not true. Deadline pointed this out themselves. Uh, the longtime uh, entertainment veteran, Peter Hammond, or Pete Hammond, wrote an article on this. And because of this, here's where it basically started. We can go over to my screen for a second if you want to, Jonathan. The Academy, what they did do is they put out this statement. And here's the statement they put out. And I want you to notice there is no mention of two Leslie, Andrea Risenbrow, but this is the statement they put out. The Academy said it is the Academy's goal to ensure that the awards competition is conducted in a fair and ethical manner, and we are committed to ensuring an inclusive awards process. We are conducting a review of the campaign procedures around this year's nominees, not one, this year's nominees, to ensure that no guidelines were violated and to form us, inform us whether changes to the guidelines may be needed in a new era of social media and digital communication. We have confidence in the integrity of our nomination and voting procedures and support genuine grassroots campaigns for outstanding performances. So it basically, I'm going to sum up what Pete Hammond says in his article. Again, veteran entertainment uh, industry uh, correspondent and journalist. And he basically wrote this too. He goes, look, and we'll go back to my screen here for a second. This is where it gets kind of difficult. Peter Hammond wrote, I choose not to put words in the Academy's mouth in our headlines. Academy conducting review of campaign procedures days after Oscar nominations revealed. But every other trade did. Maybe they got more because of it, more clicks. Unfortunately, some people only read the headlines and jump to conclusions. Here is a sample. This is other trades with their headlines. Academy investigates Oscar campaign process related to Andrea Risenbrow's to Leslie nomination. Or Academy conducting review after Andrea Risenbrow's surprise Oscar nomination. Or Film Academy conducting a review amid questions about Andrea Risenbrow's campaign. Okay, so here's the thing. Nothing in the Academy's statement said anything about Andrea Risenbrow or the to Leslie nomination. What it does say is that we may need to take a look at the way our rules work in a new era of social media, digital communication, all that kind of stuff. Now, Pete Hammond, who I am relying on him here because he knows the industry better than I do, and he's actually thoroughly investigated the situation. I have not. But one of the things Pete Hammond is pointing out was that as far as he can tell, no rules were broken, right? That there are certain members of SAG who realized people never saw this work. Uh, who is the star of uh, Underworld again? Kate, uh, Kate Beckinsale. Beckinsale. Kate Beckinsale called it, no, Kate Winslet, sorry. Kate Winslet called Andrew Risenbrow's performance in Two Leslie. I think it's Riseboro. Riseboro? Yeah. I, I've been saying Riseboro. Thank you for correcting me. Riseboro 
Thank you. I think, yeah. Kate Winslet, multiple, multiple award nominee and winner and all that. And one of the one of the great actresses of our generation said this about Andrea's performance in Two's Leslie. She said, it is the greatest performance I've ever seen. That's Kate Winslet saying that. Now, long before the Oscars, long before the Oscar nominations, long before that, one of the few recognizable trades that saw and reviewed the uh, uh, RogerEbert.com, you know, obviously Roger Ebert's not with us, but it's still an ongoing, well-respected movie. They called Andrew Roosevelt the performance of the year. Now, nobody saw it, but I'm just saying, you have to understand, before there was ever any Oscar nomination, there was talk by the terribly finite number of people who saw it that this is either the best performance of the year and some, like a Kate Winslet saying, this is the best performance I've ever seen. Now, like everybody else, I had never seen the movie. And Christian Harloff was in here last week. He has seen the movie and he had a chance to interview Andrea. And when we talked about who should win the Academy Award, like Christian was steadfast. He goes, Andrea Riseborough? Riseborough. Riseborough. Andrea should win. I'm like, that's interesting. I'm like, are you just saying, and I talked to him out. I talked to Christian. Are you just saying that because you interviewed her? He goes, dude, I'm telling you, I, I watched the movie because I was going to be interviewing her. It's the best performance of the year, I think. I'm like, better than, better than uh, Kate Blanchett. And he goes, I think it's the best performance of the year. Okay. So last night I decided I'm going to sit down after Last of Us and I'm going to watch this movie. A couple of pleasant surprises. I had no, no idea that Mark Maron was in it <laughs> or Allison Janney. Uh, was and I had no idea these people are. This is clearly a low budget film made with passion, all that kind of stuff. And I need to see what the hype was about. And I know this is going to get me in hot water, and I don't give two shits. She 100 fucking percent deserved a nomination for Best Actress this year. I'm not saying Viola Davis didn't. I'm not saying Danielle didn't. I'm not saying who gets nominations is not about who didn't deserve a nomination. That, that's never what it's about. The only thing I ever care about when I look at nomination lists is did that person's performance earn themselves in a subjective art, but am I, did it earn them a nomination? I will tell you right now, while, while I was scratching my head a little bit and kind of pushing Christian on it a little bit, after I actually watched this movie, which I admit I never did before, I never even heard of the damn film before this whole thing started kicking up. I sat down and watched this thing with my jaw in my lap. What she does in this movie, she is showing what a truly powerful world-breaking performance can do to even a small-scale film like To Leslie. And it's a very small-scale film. Woman wins the lottery, trying to change life, what happens when the good times run out and all that kind of stuff, and wrestling with that means for her life. Listen, I'll, t I'll tell you what. After watching this, I am 100% convinced the only people making a controversy out of her nomination are people who did not see the movie. Because I thoroughly, it's all art, it's all subjective, we're all going to have different opinions, yes. I'm just telling you, I have a hard time believing somebody watched this movie and didn't at least come away with, well, okay, maybe she deserved a nomination. Because it's that damn good. Now, according to Pete Hammond, He's saying that no, not, the way the rules are stated, no rules were broken. Individual actresses, like I think like a Gwyneth Paltrow or Jennifer Anderson, were saying like, listen, guys, saying to their fellow SAG members, their fellow Academy members, you have to watch this movie. 
And they would have people come over to the house and watch the movie. Pete, ha Pete Hammond points out in his article, there's no rule saying you can't invite people over to watch a movie to make sure they've seen the movie. Right. Apparently there was nothing about you must watch this movie and vote for Andrea for Oscar. No, no. They said, you've got to see this movie. And now maybe the Academy is like, hey, you know what? Maybe we need to look at our rules moving forward. How do we accommodate and, and compensate for the fact that it is a digital world now, social media? Do we need to make changes? I get that. But again, it doesn't look like any rules were broken. And at the end of the day, the only damn thing that matters to me is, are the people getting the nominations? Did they actually turn in a performance that was worthy of a nomination and not some piece of garbage where it's going to force us to go, how the hell did this happen? Andrea turned in. I would personally still give the award to Kate Blanchett. I would still give it to Kate. But I'll tell you what, if this was a movie that more people saw, it would be a two-horse race, I think, between Kate Blanchett and Andrea. It's that good, this performance. Anyway, Rob, you've heard, we've been seeing a lot of stuff over the weekend about this. What do you think about it? Well, first of all, I haven't seen the movie, but I watched the trailer on Saturday. Dude, you can see from the trailer what kind of a performance that she gives because it isn't ostentatious. You get a sense of the story. And, you know, she, by the way, as an actress, I've always loved her. She was Tom Cruise's half of his effective team in Oblivion. Like, You'd never know. You'd never know that this is the same actress. And every time she's ever done a film, she has done nothing but turn in amazing performances. No, I'm sorry that I haven't seen to Leslie because I really wanted to see it after watching the trailer. But, you know, comparing and contrasting like there's there's a really ugly undercurrent about this situation that I don't I don't like. I mean, that's not to take away from I love Viola Davis. Love Viola Davis. But for The Woman King, there are other things about that film that might have prevented it from getting a nomination for her as an actress. And it's not her performance because she's great in it. And the same is true of uh, Daniel Deadweiler in Till. I've seen Till. Till has a great central performance. I don't think the movie is as good as it could be. And that doesn't take away from her performance, but it takes away from the overall perception of the movie. And I think that a movie like this, when you don't have, it's basically just her on camera. And you know what? Like you said, Mark Maron's in there. Allison Janney's in there. I didn't know either until I watched the trailer. But you can see she's front and center. There's no special effects. It's just her. And she's got to, how do you, how do you portray a mother that has a problem with her son and, and, and dealing with the life? She's an alcoholic and dealing, if, if her performance isn't compelling, nothing on that, about that movie works. And the people like you, I've talked to a few other people that have seen the movie, and everyone I've talked to who's seen this movie can't believe the performance, that it carries the whole thing. That It's stunning. And, you know, I, I think back, it's kind of like when I saw Nicolas Cage's performance in uh, Leaving Las Vegas. So good. Uh, dude, I never thought a movie about a guy drinking himself to death would make me want to drink. That's how good the performance was. I mean, and it was incredible when you're watching a, a, a tour de force when an actor is front and center 24-7 in a movie. If they can do that without any kind of histrionics, it's just them front and center. You got to look hard. And, and those are the performances that really, in a way, Frances McDormand in um, Nomadland. Mm. was like that where she was you know, that's a that's a very comparable performance actually you know yeah i mean when when i saw that you couldn't take your eyes off her and it, there was no special effects in that movie you're watching the camera watch this woman and, and i was i found it um, unbelievably compelling and by the way one of the things that really frustrates me because part of this narrative we've heard and again before last night when i hadn't seen the movie i haven't really known what to make of it but now that i'm looking at 
one of the complaints we've been hearing a lot of people say is, well, this Andrea nomination bumped out Olivia and bumped out Danielle. Really? Let's bring up my screen for a second, Jonathan. Really? How come we're saying Andrea was the one who bumped it? Why aren't we saying that Ana de Armas bumped them out? Why aren't we saying Michelle Yeoh bumped them out? Why aren't we saying Michelle Williams bumped them out? Oh, you know why? Because we didn't see to Leslie. We didn't see it. So she didn't deserve. I mean, that that's very, very telling that. Guess what? Here's the thing. Once you watch this movie, you're not going to be saying uh, Andrea was the one who bumped out, you know, Octavia Spencer. You're not going to be saying that. You're going to have to change the name because I think, again, it's all subjective. Absolutely. But I think Andrea's name is right up there near the top with Kate and Michelle. Because, and and look, I love Michelle Williams's performance. I think she deserved a nomination. I love Anna Darmus portrayal in Blonde. I think she deserved a nomination. But I don't think the, the narrative should be Andrea bumped out. No, no. Maybe somebody did, but it wasn't Andrea. Anyway, Chris, you're, as a member of SAG, mm-hmm. and as somebody who's been in war, involved with the awards competition at SAG on, on a board level and on a committee level, mm-hmm. You've been seeing all this transpire, I'm sure, with some interest. What do you make of this whole thing? Well, it's really interesting because when you're on the nomination committee, you are invited to all of these screenings for little films that a lot of times go very, very much unnoticed. Um, There was a really beautiful, oh, I'm going to blank on the name of it because we're live. Uh, There's a really beautiful film with Benedict Cumberbatch uh, last year that was all about the artist who painted those kind of psychedelic cats who ended up penniless because he didn't like by his own patent, he didn't trademark his art. And so then his art got reproduced, uh, reproduced and, and he died alone in a mental institution. It was heartbreaking. It was a beautiful, beautiful performance. Um, and any time the electric life of Louis Wayne, there we go. Anytime I talk about that movie, people are like, what's that? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and so you do usually have very, very little films, uh, to be clear, people in the chat, I was not a judge. I was on the nominating committee, which right. is a whole bunch of different people in there. I wasn't the one who was like, and the award should go to this person. Chris that decrees. Would, that wouldn't yeah. make any sense. They randomly select members from SAG each year. Um, so lots of times you do have these kind of little indie films that with the right campaigning can make it. Um, I do want to point out, though, there is the possibility and Variety reported on this of their online social media campaign could have violated some of these rules for how campaigns should work. You are not supposed to um, laud your performance over anyone else's, basically, in any of your marketing. And they chose to use a snippet from Roper that talks about how while he thought Kate Blanchett was amazing in Tar, this chameleon-like performance here exceeded any all, and all expectations and was so wonderful. And since they put that with some of this other marketing materials saying that she should be up for consideration, that's one of the things they're looking into. Now, does that feel a little bit like they're grasping at straws? Kind of. I, I feel like I'm with people like Christina Ricci who have said that this feels a little elitist to say that, you know, because I didn't know about this campaign, this nomination shouldn't bear any, you know, credit. But at the same time, I do. Oh, Logan just texted me. It's electric life of Willie Wayne, too. Uh, I, I do think that Daniel Deadweiler not getting a nomination feels very odd because that performance was incredibly heartbreaking and moving. And again, that was another kind of is this tiny movie going to make it? Because that was another one that, you know, a lot of people I knew didn't want to go see that film because it's a hard watch. It's a difficult subject matter. It's a look at our own really, really ugly and horrific history. So that was more of my issue here of, oh, well, I haven't seen that other film, but wow, Danielle didn't get that nomination? Interesting. Okay. I definitely still need to see this. I've heard amazing things about it. 
I understand why people think it's odd. There's nothing illegal about it at this point, in my opinion. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought it because we go to my screen too, that Christina Ricci comment, because like they also ran, Christina Ricci came out pretty harsh on this uh, about the fact that Andrea's nomination is getting any backlash at all. She says it's shameful. Um, but again, you know, because to me, if you want to, and listen, every year there's going to be six, seven, or eight performances, whether it's lead actor, lead actress, supporting actress, supporting actor, that you could go, man, that person really could have got a nomination. I mean, every year. I mean, that's that's just the nature of the beast, right? The one big question mark to me, while I loved Michelle Williams in Fablemans, loved her in Fablemans, she was not a lead actress in that film. She was a support, her character was a supporting character in the film. Now, was she... Of all the female roles in the film, was hers the lead of the film? Yes, but that's not the question. Her role in that film was not a lead performance. Michelle Williams should have been slotted under the best, the studio should have put her under best supporting actress. So I think if there's any kind of wiggle room there for somebody that maybe shouldn't be there to make room for one of these other deserving people, maybe it's that one. It ain't Andrea. Do you know what really is sort of disappointing to me about this whole thing? All the other people that were in this movie, the director, the person who wrote it, the person who cast it, the fellow like Allison Janney, you know, like Mark Mayron, all of these people threw in the towel with them. They came together because they believed in this material, including Andrea. And all the people, the crew, the cast made a wonderful, presumably, I mean, I could just look at the trailer and go, well, that's an amazing piece of work, made a great movie that blew people away. And an actor has to have a whole group of people to provide an environment where they can even do that kind of work. And this this uh, controversy, like so many controversies in our modern day, really takes away from the achievement that the film itself is. And it comes down to like, oh, the rest of the movie, I mean, making movies is so hard. Getting a movie like this financed, that it, it could have taken 10 years, who knows? But I really hate it when we take these elements out of movies and forget that a movie is a collective art form that that a lot of people have come together to contribute to make happen. And I hope people remember to go watch this movie for the singular joys that it provides as a film. And I hope they they go there because of this controversy and they realize that here is a movie that deserves all the accolades it's getting. Yeah, and uh, by the way, guys, just a, a little side note: it's not available for free streaming on any of the platforms right now. I had to, uh, I had to rent it on or I'd buy it actually on uh, on Amazon myself. I think it's available on a couple a couple of the other platforms as well, but I don't think it's available for free streaming. It's not. I looked for a free option, I couldn't find it, so I had to get it on Amazon. But I highly, highly, if you're just a fan of great stories and you want to see one of the best performances of the year, I highly recommend that you maybe tonight sit down. Go on to Amazon or one of the other services and get to Leslie and uh, and enjoy. Guys, what do you think about this whole thing? Jump down to the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number three, shall we? Chris, what is our third main topic today? Our third topic comes from Jamie Martin. Greetings from Ireland. Hey, John and crew. Did you guys see over the weekend that Avatar surpassed Force Awakens as the fourth highest grossing movie at the box office? I just find it really funny that people still are trying to make this movie out as a flop. <laughs> Do you think there's more of a possibility of it beating Titanic as the third spot? Thanks and bring on the filthy. All right. Thanks a lot for saying that in. 
And I mean, ho-hum, another Monday, another all-time milestone <laughs> set by Avatar The Way of Water. Hey, listen, I get it. There's some people that, John, why are we talking about Avatar The Way of Water all the time? I don't know. We're a movie show, and this is one of the historic runs all time of any movie ever made. Can't imagine why we keep talking about it. At any rate, you know, I think, you know, there you could break it into three three groups of people. There were the group of people who thought Avatar was going to flop. There's no pop culture footprint. Yeah. And hey, listen, I, even, I was one of the people who said it doesn't have the pop cultural footprint as a lot of other it's things true. do. It died out fairly quickly. But then you get the second group of people that were kind of like me, where it's like, okay, Avatar, it's still Avatar. It's going to be a big hit. It's going to be a big hit. But th the people like me in that group thought big hit, 1.5, 1.6, 1.7 billion dollars. People like me said, but I, I can't see it getting to 2 billion. I mean, it's going to be a big hit, but I can't see it being that big of a hit. Guess what? It came and went, the $2 billion mark. Came and went. It was right in front of it, and now it's in its rearview mirror. And now Avatar The Way of Water, we can bring up my screen here, is now, not only did it crack, become the sixth film all time to hit the $2 billion mark, then it entered the top five of all time. Well, guess what? It has now passed Star Wars Episode Seven for the number four spot. It is now the fourth biggest film in history at 2.116 billion with a B dollars. Can it now the question becomes, can it enter the top three for James Cameron? It's irrelevant. James Cameron has the top, the third film of all time already with Titanic. So either way, it's going to be a James Cameron film. So we were talking before about guys, there's a chance that of the top five films of all time, three out of the five could be James Cameron films. Guess what? That discussion's over now. Now the discussion is three of the top four. 75% of the top four all-time box office films are by one Canadian kid. <laughs> one guy has made three of the top four Biggest films in history, and the only other film that's in that list is a film that required 15 A-list stars, 12-year build-up, 20-plus films building up to it, and Avengers Endgame. That's the only film that can stand in the presence of three James Cameron films that are now three of the top four by one guy. By one guy. Do you... Do you, don't let the the significance of this slip under the rug. We are living in a world that has had Hitchcock and has Scorsese and and Clint Eastwood and and you know uh, Steven Spielberg, Quentin Tarantino, you, you, this the, the all time greats, John Ford, the all time greats, and three of the four most successful films in history are by one guy whose name, even by me, is never brought up in the Mount Rushmore of directors or whatever. And by the way, I making money does not make you the best director in the world. I, I'm not, I, I still wouldn't put James Cameron on the Mount Rushmore. I'm just saying that th what this guy has accomplished here is stupid. It's stupid. Now, the two questions that remain, number one, can it catch Titanic? So let's look at this list again. Can it catch Titanic? <clears throat> right now, it sits about $78 million behind Titanic. It can. It can. To get in the number three spot. Again, for James Cameron, P 
people, that's kind of irrelevant because they're both three and four spots are both going to be James Cameron films, whether one's over the other. The second question becomes the more interesting one. Could it catch Avengers Endgame? I have said for a while, even when it looked like it was going to get to that $2 billion mark, but I think everybody agrees. In the words of Vincent McMahon, no chance in hell. This, this movie is, you look at the momentum it has, even if you did seven more re-releases, I don't think we're talking about a film that can make another $700 million at the box office. Uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen. So I think poor, unfortunate James Cameron is just going to have to settle for three of the top four instead of all three top spots, uh, which is fine. And again, you know, Chris, I know we've been talking about this run of Avatar The Way of Water. But if you are somebody like us who appreciates the history of Hollywood and everything that goes into having a successful film and how rare it is to have any film hit this type of... To me, this is remarkable. I don't know what's standing out to you the most. I mean, they're going to need to get bigger doors at the Disney lot because how is his ego going to fit through the door frame? <laughs> Goodness gracious. No, this is incredible. This is really, really amazing. I mean, to have that kind of success, to create blockbuster films that not only have made so much money, because that's, you know, bottom line for so many studios, but also that have been cultural zeitgeist films, I think is really, really powerful. Because a, a lot of times, too, we've talked about how sometimes prestige films and box office don't seem to always go hand in hand, right? And it's really, really cool when you see films like this that have been taken seriously by the Academy, that have been taken seriously by critics, and that have been enjoyed by people too. It's really nice when the two come together, when critics and fans alike go, hey, I like this. And James Cameron seems to have the magic formula for finding that balance, so it's pretty dang cool. And Rob, when people hear about like money, right? Well, box office does not equal quality. Nobody said that. The Transformers movies are a great example of that, right? It, it, just because you make a lot of money does not automatically mean your movie is great. But it is not divorced from it because the dollars that a movie makes are not like the stock market where forces outside of your control determine whether it goes up or down. You don't fall ass backwards in luck. These types of box office numbers represent People. Every dollar represents an individual film fan going, I want to go out and watch that movie and I want to go watch it again. And hell, I'm even willing to spend the ridiculous $29 price for an IMAX 3D screening. Like it represents passionate people who want to keep going to see this movie. It's now in the top four. It's past Star Wars, The Force Awakens, which is still the number one all time domestic box office film. I don't think that's ever going to change, but it's now number five all time three of the top four of Cameron's, which out of all this random bits of information is standing out to you as the most impressive? Well, here's the thing that I think is crazy. Titanic's getting re-released for Valentine's Day in 3D in theaters. You could go to a theater and watch a James Cameron double feature in IMAX yeah. 3D. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I, I mean, so Titanic is, is going to be adding more to its number three position. And I, I do think Avatar is going to overtake it and they'll switch places. But I think that what I really love is you have a talent like James Cameron, a singular talent, a man who he's the people's director. You know, he makes entertainments that at their basic, uh, uh, he, he just knows how to take the very basic essence of a story. And he knows how to translate that using cinematic technique in a way that appeals to all audiences. And that's not something that's easy to do. It's something that I would dare say is a singular talent. Because look, the Russo brothers, not to take anything away from Endgame, because I love Infinity War and Endgame. 
But oh, not, we all do, for sure. not only did it build on on all the Marvel movies that came before, but the Marvel way of making movies, much like the Marvel way of making comics, you have a whole visual design department and a previous department. And there's a lot of people that are working to create those movies. James Cameron's like, it all comes from, you talk to all of his collaborators, it all comes from him. You know, it begins and ends with James Cameron. And he is the driving force behind the technology behind the vision, behind the fact that you watch the making of The Abyss, and when everybody's gone home, he's sitting on the bottom of that nuclear power, the unfinished thing, watching dailies in a dive suit underwater. I mean, that dude is, there's been nobody like him in the history of film. There'll never be another person like him again. So it is not surprising to me that he is who he is. And you know what? At the end of the day, who wins? Well, sure, Disney stockholders, Disney whatever. Wins. <laughs> but but I think ultimately audiences, year after year after year, he's been providing entertainment to us. Next year will be the 40th anniversary, to 2024, of Terminator. So for 40 years, he's been delivering nothing but first-rate entertainment that has sprung from his imagination, and we are all the richer for it. You know, going to something you just raised here, too. Let's look at it from the Disney angle. Now, of course, Disney now, they did not make titanic they did not think but they now own that it's 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 these are properties avatar titanic these are all properties that are under the disney umbrella now so here's just something fun when we go back to this list and we look at this the top grossing films of all time number one disney film number two disney film number three disney owned film number four disney film number five disney film number six disney film number seven disney adjacent Disney adjacent. It, we'll, we'll call that we'll call that when the tie with them and Sony. Number eight. You have to go all the way down to number eight to get one that's completely divorced from Disney, and that's Universal's Jurassic World. Number nine, Disney film. Number ten, Disney film. Number eleven, another Universal up there. Number twelve, we got a Paramount. Number thirteen, Disney. Number fourteen, Disney. Number fifteen, Disney. Number sixteen, we get into Warner Brothers. I mean, it's not only for James Cameron, three of the top four, but also it's a pretty good run for Disney's owned stuff right now. Anyway, guys. Question is for you. Avatar, The Way of Water, by the way, number one at the box office again this weekend for its seventh week in a row. Uh, again, only three films in the past 25 years. This is the stunning one to me. Only three movies in the last 25 years have been number one at the box office six weeks in a row. And they're all James Cameron films. Uh, what do you think about this thing now? It has passed Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Whatever you think about this, guys, jump down into the comment section below. And let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number four. Chris, what is our fourth main topic today? This comes from Ben Williams. Hey, John and crew. I'm a huge fan of your show. So I just saw a report saying that Amazon Studios secured the rights for Tomb Raider and that they're planning on making a TV show and are connected and connected feature length film. What are your thoughts? And thanks and bring on the filthy. Thanks a lot for saying that in, Ben. And yeah, listen, when the, the most recent Tomb Raider movie came out with, um, why am I forgetting Rogue One star's name? Uh, uh, it wasn't oh, it was Alicia, Alicia Vikander. Vikander. Yeah, with Alicia Vikander playing yeah. uh, Lara Croft. I actually liked that movie. I did too. I had a good time. It wasn't great, but I enjoyed it. It was a very pleasant surprise. In, in a world filled with really crappy video game adaptations, that Tomb Raider was, was pleasantly fun. It was pleasantly fun. I was looking forward to them doing a sequel, but then we found out they're not going to be doing that. But now we get word that there are plans for the Tomb Raider franchise. This comes to us from The Hollywood Reporter, who writes the following, because 
Phoebe Waller-Bridge is getting connected in here. The Emmy-winning Fleabag grad is readying a TV series based on the popular video game turned action movie Tomb Raider. The project, uh, which is in the development stages, is the latest to stem from Waller-Bridge's recently renewed overall deal with the retail giant and streamer. Sources tell The Hollywood Reporter that Waller-Bridge is attached to write the scripts for Tomb Raider. Waller-Bridge does not plan to star in the TV adaptation of the property, which spawned a 2001 and a 2018 film adaptation starring Angelina Jolie and Alicia Vikander, respectively, as the adventuring archaeologist. So Phoebe Waller-Bridge has been winning like awards left, right, and center Fleabag. She's, been, she's written for James Bond. Uh, she was supposed to do that Mr. and Mrs. Smith thing She's still with, billed as the co-creator of it. Right, with yeah. Gambino, but she walked <laughs> off it because her and Gambino, who uh, who both gotten on social media, says, hey, we're still really good friends, yeah. but they had different creative visions for the, what thought Mr. and Mrs. Smith could be, so Phoebe walked away. This is interesting because Amazon, it appears, has really decided to get into the game because not only with you know Lord of the Rings, we've got the God of War coming up, and oh my God, if Sony Studios... Can, what they've done with Last of Us, if they can kind of repeat anything close to that with God of War, we're in for something special. Fingers crossed, who knows? But they are very serious about this. And they're talking about worlds that connect with a series, maybe movies, video games. And here's the thing. Amazon, we should do a whole story on this sometime, but Amazon is one of the few places that has what you could define as unlimited money. You got to remember, Amazon, while we don't, they don't seem in our heads as the big players like Warner Brothers, Disney, stuff like that. Today, Amazon could buy and sell Disney 20 times over like that without, without breathing, without blinking. They could buy and sell Warner Brothers 20 times over. That's the type of resources Amazon has. And if they believe they can really get into that market, whether they're right or wrong, they absolutely have the resources to do it. And they seem to have grand designs. Now, I don't know about a Tomb Raider as a series. Like, how do you have the swashbuckling adventure week after week? I, the way modern sensibilities are for this type of thing. I'm not really sure, but you're getting an Emmy Award winning writer involved in this with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And of course, we see, we're going to see her on screen coming up here in the next Indiana Jones film. Uh, but I think this is fascinating stuff. I'm looking forward to checking it out. Anyway, Rob, you heard about this. What do you think about the pairing? First of all, you know, I'm a fan of Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I loved Fleabag. It was great. Yeah, a lot of people love that and show. And what, what's really interesting about her, like, as soon as she was attached to, to like, Indiana Jones, people freaked out about her. But if you think about her in terms of where she uh, resides in the business, she's a great performer. She's a she's an actor and a, a terrific writer. And when Daniel Craig brought her on board, uh, No Time to Die to punch up the script, he wanted the female characters, the voices of the female characters punched up a bit. If you're an actor and you've watched Fleabag, of course you would do something like that. That made sense that Daniel Craig, and if you know anything about his personality, he's looking out, how can I make my movies better? Or how can I make my performance better? She's a really talented individual. So it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. I found it interesting. Like, maybe she's a fan of Tomb Raider. You never know. But the fact that they brought her on board and that she already had an overall deal with Amazon, because people, they probably asked her, what do you want to do? And I bet she probably said, you know what I'd like to do? And it was her because she'd been working on Indiana Jones, maybe. And she's thought, I have this idea for how we could do this show. And I'll bet you she's really passionate about this 
character. It's not just some. I love that you just point out something I overlooked. That that's really true. Like she's been working on Indiana Jones. She's been working in the swashbuckler adventure thing, like shooting on off for for a long time. That that might have a connection. It, yeah, a great and, and maybe she's a gamer. You know, maybe she actually played the game, and she's like, you know what, I really like to do. I'd like to do this. And Amazon's like, huh? I mean, no one just randomly anointed her the the keeper of the Tomb Raider franchise. I really do think she either went after it, it was her idea, and it was something that she because what a, a strong action-oriented female character. She wrote for Bond. She was in Indiana Jones. It se seems to me to be a pretty good fit, and somebody that's coming right off franchises that would give her insight into how to make these things. She didn't just write for them, but she watched these films get made and w work through the production process and was in Indiana Jones working with James Mangold. So she probably learned a great deal about how do you accomplish action sequences and mounting projects like this. So before everybody, you know, you can, I can already imagine the op-ed think pieces and all this that I haven't gotten into, but it's like, I always beg people to stop and ask yourself, why do these people get in these projects? Before you get mad about it, why don't you look into what brought them there and realize they might have a very good reason. It's not just, and I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge probably went after this because she was passionate about it, and that's what you want from any creator. Yeah. And by the way, studios were lining up to sign her to First Look Deal yeah. and stuff like that. Again, you don't get a lot of Emmy winners on there. Anyway, Chris, you hear about that. I mean, it's not one I would have guessed, but when I saw the report come out, I was like, this oddly makes sense to me. I don't know. What do you think about it? Oh, I love her so much and I love this. I mean, she's an incredible creator. That's how she has made her mark here. She's always created her own content or created content for others that really, really does heighten what we kind of expect from leading female roles. Look at Killing Eve. That is a wild, wild show that really, really launched Jodie Comer's career and gave her so much to play with and made her just be this wild, often unlikable, often violent character. You know, she really, really can play with dynamics in such an interesting way. Didn't she write for that, too? She was the creator of it. So oh, it yeah. wasn't. OK, yeah, she created it. Well, there you go. Yeah. Based on those novels. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. She created it for television, I should say. There, that, well, there's your reason. Right. So she, I think, will do a phenomenal, phenomenal job here. Plus, these latest installments in the games, too, have really had this lovely narrative of following Laura, you know, in her father's footsteps. If you do the whole kind of thing we had in this last series of films of the shipwreck and going through that, you do have the opportunity for treating it kind of like a lost situation or maybe bringing in some of the sensibility of like a Mandalorian kind of show, right, where we have a narrative through line, but there's lots of different kind of twists and turns and actiony moments that can happen. I think the big thing here is to kind of keep that archaeological through line throughout it. And I think she's going to crush this. It's going to be fun. Laura yeah, Croft is going to have quips. Pedro Pascal will ever be able to find a show where he's not a lead and a protagonist taking a young prodigy off to a <laughs> group of people that are waiting for them. Anyway, I, I got to ask Ray this because the, the first, I remember with the, the new Tomb yeah, Raider, Ray. the new generation of Tomb Raider, Ray was the first one I saw playing those games. I know you were big into those Tomb Raider. What, what do you think about them doing this as a television series? as opposed to continuing the movie, and maybe making some movies too, but as opposed to carrying on with what they've done before. It all depends on what, how they're going to go about it, if it's going to be more serious. Like, I actually liked the last reboot. I, I wish they made another one. Yeah, I, so did I. Um, it's, if she follows the games the way they are, like Chris was saying, like, it, it'll be good. Like, but I don't know. It all depends if there's an audience for it. It's like a, what, a Indiana Jones series? 
is supposedly or something like that. Oh yeah, we, were we have like getting the young indie. Again. Yeah, we have like that national treasure that's on Disney Plus right now. We got a couple of things that are have the same sort of uh, tone, right. I guess. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll actually watch this. But uh, important to me would be who they cast to. That's the big question, right? Like right. this is kind of like a Bond situation. Who do you cast for this? Because it, it ain't going to be easy. Uh, it doesn't have to be a big name. But getting the, I mean, I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say this will all hinge on getting the right person. Because when you've got a show that's about this iconic character, who you're getting to play that character becomes your make or break moment, right? You get the wrong person to play it. it it's, it's game over almost before you start. It has to be someone who's like a- athletic or what, because she's, she's jumping through and like hanging on by her, uh, I forgot what those things are called. Fingers. No, <laughs> those things that she used to climb the yeah the, oh, the, yeah, the yeah, hooky yeah. spike like things yeah yeah but remember the workout video remember before the movie came out the last Tomb Raider remember the workout videos that Alicia Vikander put out and she's doing these chin ups and there's a cameraman behind her on her not bareback but she had the the thin strip tank top right yeah and the like there were muscles popping out that I didn't know were part of the human physiology. <laughs> Like so, your guy, you're gonna have to get somebody who's and, tremendously in shape. And one last thing, if they can match The Last of Us, like the the setting where it looks, it it it's not like Rings of Power where it looks like they're on a, like a fake set or whatever like that. Because sometimes Rings of Power, that's what took me out of it. Like when they're supposed to be in the forest, but you could tell the background is separated from the tree. <laughs> yeah. Um, if they could do it like Last of Us, where it actually, I'm blown away at the city, the destroyed city when they do those big pant pan outs on the last of us if they can make the environment look like that then i i think well they did in the last movie right because they actually they actually did practical effects they actually went out to some oh, island yeah. they actually shot this thing and it looked incredible anyway guys question is for you what do you think about this emmy winner phoebe waller bridge is now going to be writing a tomb raider franchise not starring in it it's gonna be interesting to see who they get how are you feeling about this whatever you guys think jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts all right, guys, with that down, let's move into our fifth and final main topic here today, shall we? Chris, what is our fifth main topic today? Our fifth topic comes from Plot Twisties. Hey, gang, The Last of Us Episode 3, wow, what a beautifully sad love story between these two guys. Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett killed it. This show is killing it. Is the success of the show creatively simply due to having incredible source material to draw from and then expand on? or because creator Neil Druckmann is involved to shepherd the story along even with the changes they're making. I mean, Margaret Atwood was heavily involved with The Handmaid's Tale, and it's been amazing. Or is it a combination of both? Your thoughts? All right, thanks a lot for, for saying that, in. Look, let's, let me deal with the second part of that question there first. We as fans have this habit. We all do it. I do it. You do it. We all do it. We're always looking for formula. What's the formula that did it? Does... You know, a lot of people think R rating in comic book movies is the formula to success. Well, we know that's not true. Some can, some don't. Is you know the Marvel formula the way you're supposed to make these things? No, it worked for Marvel, won't necessarily work for others. But that's what we do. We look for formula. Why is The Last of Us so good? Is it because they have Neil Druckmann in it? And being, a, well, there's been a lot of adapted material that has been fantastic without the original creators involved. And by the way, some adapted material with the creators involved that turned out to be total piles of dog dung. So I don't think that's there. 
it works because they just found the right. Listen, sometimes making great on-screen entertainment is about capturing lightning in a bottle. Get good people. They got Mason in there. The guy who did uh, Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Which is like one of the, maybe the best miniseries I've ever seen. And he also has 25 years of industry experience behind him. Yep. And listen, you know who nobody's giving any credit to? But I'm sorry, it's because if this show was bad, we would be giving them blame. Sony Studios. I mean, listen, let's just, be, let's just call it. If this show was bad, everybody would be pointing fingers at Sony. And they would deserve some of that. This show is remarkable. You have to give some of the credit to their new studio division as well. It is what it is. I'm not saying lion share. I'm just saying if we're going to point fingers of blame, which we would be doing, we also got to point fingers of credit. So let's move beyond the question of, uh, of uh, formula. I watched last night's episode of The Last of Us, and our buddy Tommy was over at our place watching football with a bunch of us. And, and as we were going into the theater room to watch last of us he mentioned you know i heard this is like the episode i'm like come on really episode three i i, I think we're just getting introduced to a couple characters here blah blah blah. i don't know if it's gonna be all again by the way we're not going to go into heavy spoiler details here about last night's episode uh we will be doing that a little bit later today at 3 p.m as we do our last of us open spoiler discussion at 3 p.m where we will talk in all open spoilery goodness and all the details of the last of us Make sure you guys come back and join us again. Once again, that's at 3 p.m. Uh, later today. That's 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right, so let's get to last night's episode. I put on Twitter that I believe last night's episode of The Last of Us, which totally caught me by surprise, was a top five best episodes of television of the last five, maybe 10 years. That was a motion picture. That episode of Last of Us last night was its own standalone motion picture. It was long enough to qualify for being a feature film. It was 75 minutes long, I think, without credits. I watched this thing. I was instantly in love with the characters. I was, and we're not even talking about the Joel and Ellie stuff. I was immersed in this world. And by the way, I, and I get this, I understand this. I read some criticisms, mostly everybody's lauding this as the greatest thing ever, but I read some criticisms saying, ah, you know, it didn't really further the story of the show. I'm like, what are you, <laughs> setting the world, understanding what's at stake, what people are striving for and what has been lost in this world and understanding the context of the world itself and seeing these types of stories is every bit as important to furthering our understanding and narrative of the overall story as it is. Guess what? We will better understand Joel and Ellie and what they're fighting for and what they're going for because of this episode we just watched. This was Ron Swanson at his best. Nick Offerman in, in this thing. And what's the other actor's name again? Uh, Murray Bartlett, I believe. Murray, yeah, Murray. From White Lotus. I, I am telling you what. I have... It's very rarely that I've seen a show or a movie that could get me so emotionally invested in two brand new characters so quickly. So quickly. This was a an episode with humor. I mean, I'm sorry. Without giving any context so you don't know what I'm doing... There's a dinner scene, camera does a quick pan back, and he's sitting there with a gun in his hand on the table, and I just about died. I mean, it was so funny. To a final shot of a camera panning back of an open window. 
which is symbolically one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen shot in a television show. And again, you if you haven't seen the episode yet, you have no idea what I'm talking about. No content, but a camera, simple pan backwards of an open window. And just thinking of that shot, I'm getting emotional. Just thinking of that shot is emotional to me. Well, don't think about it. Hide your emotions, tamp it all down. <laughs> <laughs> all that stuff. I, I was floored by the stuff. And I'll tell you what else. To me, The Last of Us Episode 3 ends the discussion of is the key to making a good video game adaptation staying 100% true to the video game? No. It's not. It's clearly not. What what was last night was based totally on the spirit of the game, but was all completely original. Last night's episode was completely original from the game. The, what happened last night was not seen in the game. There's some stuff between Joel and Ellie, some dialogue completely taken from the game, all that kind of stuff. But the story of Bill and Frank, while these are characters, one we see in the game, one we don't really see in the game, but the story of Bill and Frank, for all intents and purposes, was a completely original thing that was really not a part of the game itself. The key to making a good video adaptation is not just sticking to the game. It's knowing when to stick to the game. Rob, you've said this. It's knowing when to stick to the game and when can you heighten it. Staying true to the spirit of the game, which they totally did. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I watched, this was the first time in a long time that in the same evening, I watched an episode of something, walked away for a bit, came back, said, I got to watch that again. And I immediately put it back on again. I was moved by it. It, it built the world. I cannot wait to come back for episode four. I'm still kind of shaking a little bit about the other. That, this type of creative artistry that is also pop culturally entertaining is phenomenal. These little misdirects that were in it, which we'll go more into in the open spoiler discussion later. I, I'm telling you, Rob, we as fans are sometimes accused of throwing around the term masterpiece a little too loosely, and maybe that's true. But with my whole heart, I'm going to call last night's episode of The Last of Us, episode three, an absolute masterpiece of television. I think it raises the bar. I, I'm i just floored by this episode. Anyway, Rob, what were your overall impressions of last night's episode three of The Last of Us? Well, like you, I, I was kind of astonished by this episode. And, you know, afterwards, I find it interesting, even though they're very short, to hear Druckmann and Mazin talk about the fact that, and Druckmann said, look, we could stick to the game. We could, we could do the game and, and turn that into a series, and that would be fine. But he says, but if we can come up with ways to move away from the game that can add to the, we'll do it. He's not afraid of doing it. Now, what's really interesting, a video game, everyone is locked in. They, they want to have exactly what happened in the video game happen in a, in a TV show which I or happen in a story, which I think is odd because a narrative is different a narrative, the way a narrative is, is presented is different in a game than when it's in some other form, a movie or, or a TV series. What this episode did was not only was it a beautiful personal story, but it also encapsulates what the whole world lost. And, and it showed basically how civilization can both collapse and yet still be retained in the face of what's going on. It worked on so many different levels. And what it did was it actually added, you could play the game. Now, anybody that comes to the game now is going to remember this episode. And this episode is going to now accentuate 
the gameplay for people that come and play Last of Us because they're going to have this to remember. So what's really interesting, I think, about what's happening here is this series and the game are working together to create an experience that's greater than the sum of each of them. And I find that fascinating. And it would never have happened if Druckmann wasn't working with Craig Mazin. Anyway, Chris, I, I know you've been enjoying this series mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, we haven't had a chance to talk about your thoughts on yeah. on last night's episode, but your overall impressions of episode three of The Last of Us. Oh, it's so good. I, I'm really glad that I didn't watch this with folks. I had I made my little mochi cake, brought that, hung out with some people, <laughs> and then Logan and I watched this, just the two of us. And thank God, because I did not want to be social with anyone after this. I just wanted to hold my husband. Um, this episode is beautiful. And the changes they made, to Rob's point here, you know, they made changes that further this story, that further this narrative that they're telling. And by making these changes, a lot of it is still true to the game, honestly. There are things that are hinted at in the game, right? There are Yeah, some of it is things. expansions on things that are hinted in yeah. the game. Yeah, and then they did take some big leaps with other things and different kinds of relationships and stuff. But what they did here is they made a really, really beautiful story that only heightens what we're going to see and what our characters need to know, right? They need certain through lines to push them forward in this current narrative. And it's just so expertly done. It's so beautifully shot. I really, really enjoyed this one. And and it is really just fun to see Ron Swanson in in a, oh, Ron was right about everything. (laughs) I love it. You know, there's one other thing I wanted to say too, and this is a little thing, but, you know, anybody who has complaints about Bella Ramsey playing Ellie, her performance in this episode, it was a subtle thing. But, you know, they get, in a, they get in a thing, a vehicle. Her response, because her character oh, so good. has never been in any. And, and as she's playing all, because I don't remember, in the video game, I never felt this way. But her response to these elements of the real world that she's, or not, but the outside world that she's never been a part of, the way she's playing it from the, talking about forests or all she is killing this role i mean absolutely killing it it's it, it could never her performance could not exist in a video game form because it you you wouldn't have that you'd have to animate that but she is crushing this she's making the character of ellie her own and i have really been enjoying just loving watching her take on this and she got to do a lot of really interesting things this episode performance wise and man I think she's just crushing it. Uh, one other thing that, you know, understandably, a lot of the conversation right now is revolving around this incredible story of Bill and Frank. But one of the other things, before we even got to that story, I've started to really appreciate this episode because while we're on episode three now, this was the first episode that they started the process of building the bond between Joel and Ellie. Because up until now, Ellie is a package, right? Right. Ellie is a package that Joel needs to deliver and it's cost him, right? To this episode, you start to see the dynamic between the characters and we start to see the formation of a bond. And by the way, there is one scene, you guys, for those of you who've seen the show, you'll know what I'm talking about, where Ellie is near the beginning of the episode. Ellie is sitting down by a tree and she says, I gotta say say something to you. She She says something to Joel that he thinks she's going to say one thing. And she's like, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, deal with this. Uh, basically, I'm not going to say what, what the dialogue was, but she says something to, her, to him that 
so firmly establishes her character. And I think it's the first moment, because you look at the reaction of Pedro Pascal's face when she says it to him, and you could see the formation of, I respect this girl. You know, a little bit, right? Yeah. Again, we won't go, uh, no, uh, none of that. But we'll get into that a little bit later today. But but for so many reasons, uh, this episode was like a new standard of, of, of quality in television. Anyway, guys, question is for you. Did you have a chance to watch episode three of The Last of Us last night? I am continued to be impressed every week. They just seem to topping themselves, going in new directions, showing this breadth of being able to tell incredible stories. What are you guys thinking of it? Maybe you don't think it's for you. Maybe it's not quite working for you. Maybe you think it's even better than we do. Whatever you guys think, jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With all that down, let's now go over to uh, the important stuff here. We want to hear from you and what your thoughts, theories, questions, and opinions are about any of the topics we talked about here today. Do you have a thought, something you want to say about The Last of Us? Try not to make it spoilery or we'll skip over it. Uh, whatever those are, we are now opening up the Super Chats, and we're going to spend the rest of our time here today taking questions from you guys. Now, before we get to those Super Chats, we want to take a second and thank a couple more sponsors of the John Campy Show here today, the fantastic folks at Masterclass, and of course, my mobile phone service provider, Mint Mobile. We want to thank a sponsor of this video, Masterclass. Masterclass offers classes on a wide variety of topics, all taught by world-class instructors at the very top of their fields. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons, usually around 10 minutes long. And Masterclass is completely accessible on your phone, the web, smart TV, and available via audio mode to listen to classes on the go. They have over 2,500 video lessons from over 180 of today's most brilliant minds. They're all available anytime, anywhere on iOS, Android, desktop, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, and Roku. Now, obviously around here on the John Campus Show, we love our movies. So why not learn filmmaking from Jodie Foster or maybe directing from Ron Howard himself or the great Neil Gaiman doing his masterclass on the art of storytelling. And you guys have heard me talk about my favorite masterclass, Business Strategy and Leadership by Big Papa Iger himself, Bob Iger, the new and returning CEO of Disney. Guys, I highly recommend that you check it out. This holiday, give the perfect gift of an annual masterclass membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash campia today. That's masterclass.com slash campia. Terms apply. Guys, we want to thank a sponsor of this video, Mint Mobile. If saving more and spending less is one of your top goals for 2023, why are you still paying insane amounts of money every month for your phone bill? Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save money this year. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. Guys, I have told you before that when I was on one of the major phone carriers, I was spending literally three times as much every month and switching to Mint Mobile couldn't have been easier. So for people just looking to save some extra money this year, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and switch easily in just minutes with eSIM. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com campia. That's mintmobile.com slash campia. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash campia. 
and thank you to our friends at Masterclass and Mint Mobile for being sponsors of the John Campia Show. All right, guys. With that all said, let's now get on to your comments and questions that you have. Chris, what do we got in there? From <laughs> so Elvira, we got some support. Thank you very much. Suthius, uh, a few weeks ago, my wife bought like a 10-pound bag of potatoes. We haven't eaten them fast enough, and now they're growing roots and fuzz. Nope. <laughs> You ain't going to have me with fungus growing out of my ass. I, I'll tell you what. I we remember one time anyway. there was this girlfriend of mine once. I remember we. she asked me to get something out from under her sink, and I did. And I noticed something. There was a bag of potatoes under her sink. And there was, it was, the trees were growing out of the potatoes. I remember, that's disturbing. I never heard of cordyceps or anything like that at the time. <laughs> I'd never seen The Last of Us. But I'm like, nope, not going to touch that. That seems unnatural. Probably very natural, but yeah, no. <laughs> Not not a not a good thing, especially after watching this this show. All right, what's next? From Dumbrodor, I want Avatar two to hit the top three worldwide box office, just so we can say that the top three are AAA, uh, Avatar, Avengers Endgame, and Avatar two. I mean, it's true. I mean, it, it looks look it very well could now with the re release of Titanic coming at February 20, 20, uh, 20 no, 14th? Four, yeah, I think 14th. Look, it's not going to make $200 million of the box office or anything like that, but it's going to add something. Yeah. It's going to make it a little bit more difficult for Avatar The Way of Water to get. I think it, it will, though, at this point. I think it still has enough momentum to catch it. Um, but you're right. I didn't think about that. The top three would literally be all A's across the board. Interesting thought. All right, what's next? From Oscar Layout. Hey, John and crew, just wanted to ask what happened with Amy? She was incredibly funny when she appeared on the show, especially when she was talking about Harry Styles eating watermelon. <laughs> yeah, um, I've addressed this about 50 times on the show before, but Amy Amy was specifically brought in because I was taking Fridays off on a regular basis and we needed some extra talent in to fill that spot. Now, for different reasons, I had to no longer take Fridays off. So listen, uh, Amy was fantastic. She's really, really good. And when we have more need for talent like that, we're definitely going to be giving Amy a call, but that's why, as we've explained before, why she's not here right now, because we simply just don't have a spot for her right now. All right, what's next? From Fried Cheese Macaroni Ball, Rob, the Sultan of Spoilers. I didn't spoil oh, anything. He is today. today. He did. Rob was very anything. well behaved today. Yeah. I gotta say. It's a long day. No. Oh, <laughs> long day. man. Still no. more time to go. <laughs> we... I just want to remind you, we all have a spoiler-filled after show that you can join us at at 3 o'clock this afternoon where we're going to talk about a long, long time. <laughs> Don't send me your screeps. <laughs> all right, what's next? From Frederico Jordan, last night's episode of The Last of Us was excellence on top of excellence in writing and even more so acting. Unbelievable. Listen, this is one of those things of a convergence of things where Ray was pointing this out. The set design is incredible. Like when you go into the town, what's the name of the town again? Um, Lincoln. What's that? What's that? Lincoln, Massachusetts. Lincoln. That's right. When they go into the town, like even just if they're walking around the town, like just the set design is beautiful. The force, the city backgrounds, all that kind of stuff. The performances are world class. The direction of it is world class. The writing is world class. This is like a whole collection of things coming in to play here, just amalgamating into one incredible experience. It's it's utterly fantastic. All right, what's next? From Joe Ranzo, Chris, who's your pick to win the Super Bowl? Rihanna. Okay, first of all, I was going to say, I was going to say, the first thing I need, I'm going to be impressed. Chris, do you know who is playing in the Super Bowl? The Chiefs. Very good. Nicely done. And, and someone else with maybe a better name. Yeah, it's the Chiefs and the Eagles. 
And the eagle, the eggles? The eggles. The eggles are going to be there? That's right. Uh, yins and yous and all y'all are going to be freaking out. Yeah, Rihanna's going to win. And also it'll win friendship, probably. <laughs> friendship will win. By yeah. the way, two brothers, the Kelsey brothers are going to be playing against each other. Um, by the way, we're watching this thing. And I think it was Ray that said, uh, you can bring up my screen here. So, um, oh, that's, no, you're going to need to refresh that. So there we go. So this act came, which by the way, everybody's super excited about Rihanna. I think, I think Super Bowl is going to be like her first live performance in like six years. But this came on and I didn't think about this till Ray said it. Ray I didn't say like, anything. You did? You said it. I didn't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> We're watching the game. Also, did she used to be one of the village people in the Grinch? And like, oh my God, she does have Whoville hair. This is totally Whoville. Come on. I but very much looking forward to that performance. So you're right. She is probably going to win the Super Bowl. It's, it's probably going to be Rihanna's day. All right. What's next? <laughs> From Al Renshaw. Excited to see Knock at the Cabin this Saturday at Alamo Drafthouse's new Chicago location. It seems like a fun and interesting place. I'm very excited. You know what? Again, I have some issues with Alamo and, and who runs it and the way they're run. But uh, being objective, they have a great theater chain, man. And going to their theaters is a fun, fun time. More movie theater chains could take some real cues from Alamo Drafthouse because they understand the movie going experience isn't just about the movie that comes up on the screen. It's the whole experience of going and they make a really good experience. So, uh, yeah, I think you're going to have a good time. Here's hoping the movie's as good as it looks like it could be. All right. What's next? From Sam Fisher. Hey Rob, I wanted to let you know Adam Savage just did a YouTube video where he got to look at and ask questions about the Disney Plus Moon Knight costume. Yes, uh, I need to see that. Uh, I interviewed the uh, the girl who designed that costume for Designing Hollywood, and it is it's amazing because how many pieces they had to put on it. There's over a thousand pieces of fabric on that costume. No. Yes. Really? Yes. Is Adam Savage was he one of the MythBuster guys? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I never did watch MythBusters. He's got a great, he's a big geek, and he does mm -hmm. a channel where he's always looking at models and, and props and things from sci-fi, fantasy, yeah, and horror yeah. stuff. It's really good. All right, what's next? Action figures. From Dumbro Door again, AMC has reserved seating, but has anyone stolen or tried to steal your seat before? I come in as soon as possible so I don't have to put up with taking my seat back. Oh, yeah, but I just ask them to move. Yeah, I... Sometimes they just don't know. Yeah. I once... Because listen, the, the reality is theater's dark. Sometimes, by the way, AMC and others, eh, the numbers on the seats aren't super clear. Mm -hmm. um, I have one time, although I've seen it happen a couple of times, I have one time come into a movie where somebody was in my seat. But like Chris said, it was simply a matter of, oh, I just, I just popped my phone. I said, it's ours. And then they looked at theirs again and goes, oh, we're in the wrong row. Yeah. Right? No big deal. Easy fix. Um, but uh, yeah, once you're able to show somebody now, I can only imagine there being a real problem if you show you have seat A6 and then somebody else also shows they have A6. Yeah, then there's going to... But I've never seen that happen. Rob, you ever come across something like that? I have seen that happen. But I this reminds me of something I wanted to bring up to you. I got an email this weekend. What? A script. Movie Pass Beta. Yeah, their, their movie passes back. I looked at this and I th was thinking specifically about AMC. We're reopening the wait list for a limited time. John, <laughs> I don't think you could give me all the tea in China to get me to reestablish any relationship with movie pass. And I meant to ask you about it because I wanted to put it on and off the top as hell freezing over. 
because <laughs> I can't believe that this is happening. And I wanted to talk to somebody from AMC because, you know, AMC was the place that I most associated with using my 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 movie pass with because I we both love AMC, the AMC 16. Yep, the A-list, the AMC A-list. The and, and I just, you know, there's no way in hell that I would ever do this again. And I don't even know how they have my email still. I, I'm more forgiving. Because, Are you? Because it's not, the, the movie list name is the same, but it's now being run again by the people who ran it when it was a legitimately well-run business before. Remember, was it guy, ever though? It was. The yeah, but, was the model ever going to work? It was. It, I would. I would propose that it did. Like back when Movie Pass was like thirty-five dollars in L.A., I became an early adopter of it. Me too. And I enjoyed it. It wasn't until the 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 creator of Movie Pass sold the company and left, and he sold it to I can't remember the name of the company that took it over, but this company took it over, and they're the ones who came up with this scheme of we'll drop it to ten dollars a month. There was no way that business model was ever going to work. And their whole business premise was the idea of blackmailing um, movie theaters and screwing over fans and all that kind of stuff. Now, they're gone. Uh, they're all out of the way. The original creator of Movie Pass is now back. They've taken it over. They're going to try to relaunch it in the spirit of the original. Look, I don't know that it's going to work. But since I appreciated what they did when he owned it before... I'm very curious to see if they can make this work. I mean, I know I've derailed the question, but the question brought this up. It made me go, oh, it was, it was, I couldn't help myself. I had to bring up the movie pass thing with, it, with AMC and looking for seats. All right. What's next? From Stubble McShave, Rob, ask Campia crew about the Tuvix dilemma. Tuvix. Tuvix? What's a okay, Tuvix? Okay, that would take too much time. Okay. It's a Star Trek Voyager thing, but oh. it is very compelling from an ethical standpoint. What happens is, Two characters, two main characters get fused into one character, a new character, a new being. And the idea is, well... Oh, yeah, they did that in Star Trek uh, Voyager. In Voyager, right? that, yeah, that's yeah. what this is from. So the idea is, well, now we can separate. They figure out how they can separate and bring the two characters back. But they'd have to kill this new being that has its own hopes and dreams and feelings in doing so. And so it becomes a, a dilemma. Do we do that? That's it. I mean, all right. Reminds me a little bit of uh, Gogeta. Isn't that what they call uh, the merged Go, uh, Goku and uh, and Vegeta? Is that what they're called? They, when they do the little Gogeta? finger touch thing, don't they become or Gogeta? Vegeta or Gogeta? Something like that. Anyway, Maybe. all right. What's next? <laughs> I watch Dragon Ball Z regularly enough. Uh, Al Renshaw. I still listen to Thriller and Man in the Mirror sometimes. Michael Jackson has made some of the most iconic music ever. John, ever moonwalk as youth? Oh. Dude, I, I was a... I was as a, youth, did you? As youth, I was a paid professional breakdancer. Video and, or it didn't happen? Uh, you're never going to see it. Video or it didn't happen? It. That's good. I, that is what I would like the world to think. Um, but uh, yeah, so... You know what the funny thing is? I think my favorite Michael Jackson, out of all the iconic stuff from Thriller and all that kind of stuff, I think my favorite song of his is actually um, Black and White. It's a good song. Or black or White. I think yep. it's Black or White. And I still remember the first time I heard it, he did it live on stage with Slash from Guns N' Roses. It's a good <laughs> tune. Was, yeah, I, I really... And the music video... Like they, they do a visual effect in it that today doesn't seem that weird, but at the time it was like mind blowing yep. when the faces would morph into different yep. people. It was pretty crazy. All right, what's next? 
from Vixter 5001, saw Oscar-nominated Paul Mescal on stage this weekend, and wow, what a talent he is. Just exhilarating to watch. He's going to be a huge star. Who's that again? He's he's nominated for uh, for uh, After Sun. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay. Uh, what was he doing on stage? What, like, did, like what, is he a musician as well? Was he in a live theater exactly, production? Probably in a theater production. Okay. Interesting. All right. What's next? From Sam Fisher. What I love about this episode most is that if you take Joel and Ellie out of it, it just becomes a standalone special about finding love in an apocalypse. It's, I don't want to go into details, but it's, it's, it's even about so much more than that. Like I said, I, to me, it was a movie. It, I was, I was watching a standalone movie in many ways, which fits perfectly in the last of a series and easily could have stood on its own. Um, yeah, I just, it was phenomenal. Well, it was all, you know, I don't want to say anything, but the, what one character learns about their purpose. Yes. Really got to me. Yep. It was so moving and powerful. All right. What's next? Harv's K. Finally saw Tar. That Juilliard lectured scene is perhaps the best one shot se- the best one shot sequence I've seen in a while. Immaculately staged and executed and so thematically keyed into the entire oh, rest of the so film. Good. Rob, you listed it as your number one film. I, you know what? I can't get enough of this movie about the, the artistic <laughs> impulse and why. Do, look, it's not for everybody. But it's the kind of thing, it just appealed to me on a number of different levels. And, you know, that sequence is a great sequence. And it has a lot of resonance in terms of what's going on in our world today about creators and what people should say and think and do publicly. And I I, I loved it. All right, what's next? Matt Sanders sending in a $20 super chat. Thank you, Matt. John, did you hear breakdancing is now in the Olympics? Yes, it did. It's time to break out your parachute pants and cardboard. Time to shine. Man, I'll, I'll tell you what. I still remember I won. Uh, the Olympics? I, I, no, not the Olympics, <laughs> but I won a, a local breakdancing competition where I got a, for for a kid, by a, a what was a very expensive Adidas windbreaker outfit. Head to toe, it, it looked super great. I mean, at least I thought so at the time. Uh, but yeah, it's an Olympic sport. Can I say as somebody who appreciates breakdancing and breakdancers a lot, I will still every once in a while watch these like Asian teenage crews do things that I never thought were physically possible. It's ridiculous that it's an Olympic sport. As somebody who loves the art form, it's ridiculous that it's an Olympic sport. It shouldn't be, but uh, whatever. All right, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> from Federico Jordan, the one negative about Last of Us is that now I require all episodes for Disney Plus shows to be an hour long. I cannot watch 25 minutes anymore. I, again, I really need Disney to wake the fuck up. Like, it's it's really frustrating. And they make some great shows. WandaVision, Mandalorian, some of them are great. But I'm always feeling a little dissatisfied when when it ends i i just it's like you wait all week to sit down for this experience and then you watch something like last of us 50 minutes hour and 15 minutes whatever sit down to watch moon Knight, 31 minutes well that was one of the things about this last episode of last of us you really felt like you were taken on a journey like it was as fulfilling yeah. as any movie you'd watch and i you know i thought to myself i i didn't listen to the their actual podcast. I watched the after show, but I want to know, like, did they have to lobby HBO to allow them to go this much further? Or did they budget for this to be a longer episode? Cause 22 minutes or however long it was more than an hour. That's, that's time and money. And I really would love to know about how this episode was produced. Cause it was marvelous. All right, guys, listen, 
I just took a look at the clock and we are already over time today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather up the questions that we did not get around to yet. And we will do something we haven't done in a long time. We're going to do a companion video uh, that will get through the rest of the questions here today. But we got a lot of work that we got we to gotta get to. We have other things we have to start working on right now. So that will do it. For today's installment of the John Campia Show, thank you so much for being here, guys, and making this show part of your day. Big special thank you to all you guys who did send in these super chats, number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about, but number two, you supported this channel as you did it. And again, a little bit later today, look for that companion video to come up. So for everybody in the room, Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett, back there we got Ray Aura, Taylor Gonzalez, Jonathan Voico, and of course the wonderful Chris Carr. My name's John Campia, guys. Thanks a lot for being here. And until next time, my friends... Bye-bye.